Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today's episode of Something to Wrestle With is brought to you by our friends at brandnewhouse.com. At brandnewhouse.com, you can get out of that old apartment and into a brand new house with no money down. And your new house payment, it's going to be roughly what you've been paying in rent. Why wouldn't you do this? You don't know any super wealthy renters. Let's go ahead and experience the American dream and let First Family help you make it happen right now at brandnewhouse.com. You don't need a down payment. Your new house payment, roughly what you've been paying in rent, but no more noisy upstairs neighbors, no more sound ordinances. You don't have to have a pet deposit. Man, now you got a backyard. You can even get a garage. Get something to claim your own for your family, and First Family can help you make it happen, even with credit scores in the 500s. That's right. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket, and it's free to find out how easy it is to become a brand-new homeowner. Get out of that apartment. Get into a brand-new house. Check it out right now at brandnewhouse.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. Thank you, Bruce. I love you. Give me double cheeseburger. Double cheese. Double mayo. Double onion, motherfucker. You're nothing but an egg. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I believe you said it a little bit earlier, better than I deserve. Man, oh, pretty damn good. Man. Life is good. And, uh, it's going to get even better because you and I are going to LA looking forward to this, man. The Regent theater, as you'd like to say, and tickets are on sale right now over at brucepritchard.com and you can come see our show and then still make it to NXT. We're doing an early afternoon show so you can get your meet and greets, your VIPs, your custom swag, pick Bruce's brain, whatever you'd like. And then you never know who might show up at one of our shows, right, Bruce? Absolutely. And from the guest list that I've heard from you, I'm a little scared, a little intimidated, Conrad. Well, I think it's going to be a good time. Please join us. Tickets are only 35 bucks right now. They're over at BrucePritchard.com. And we don't get to the West Coast very often. So if you can make it, you should. This is going to be a good time. And we had a good time last week when we were talking about Daniel Pewter and the Hardcore Championship. It was kind of fun doing a bit of a, a combo show. We had lots of you know people asking, why did you cover the hardcore championship here? And then all of a sudden, all over social media, everybody was talking about the hardcore championship. So I think we picked a good topic and I think it got people talking, but to my surprise, uh, Daniel Pewter still starting it up, huh? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that 
people really were saying, why Daniel Pewter too? And at the same time, he's he's still just recycling the same kind of rehash that he recycled a long time ago. And um, it was interesting, to say the least. I think we learned a lot, an awful lot about Daniel Pewter people didn't know before and got to see another side and another side of Tough Enough as well. Yeah, it was fun for me to take a deeper dive into that season of tough enough and really examine some of the challenges and the who, what, when, where, why, but then to really talk about the whole contract piece, because it was such a controversial thing and he got so much heat and then, you know, it was short lived. It's just fascinating to me that the guys that WWE picks and puts on TV and pays a bunch of money to sometimes aren't really the stars. It's the guys who make their way through developmental for peanuts and then become megastars and it's just an interesting look at a different way to come into the business i had fun with it and i know you've had fun doing some new stuff over on patreon at patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle sure have man been getting the phone calls out to the t-shirt buyers which is always shocking where they're like really you're actually calling me now um but we are actually calling and getting a lot of that up there over on Patreon. And I love doing my Q&As. I try to do them on a Monday or a Tuesday night around either Raw or SmackDown. And I just absolutely love the interaction live going back and forth with people there on Patreon. And even just out of the blue, Conrad, you know what a great cook I am. Oh, God. I don't want to hear about this. You're not a good cook. I'm a great, first of all, I am a great cook and I was making lasagna the other night. So when I was finishing it up, I got pissed off said, why in the hell haven't you been recording this the whole time? Because my wife works as my, like my sous chef and assistant. I mean, I do all the important hard stuff. My goodness. So I had her hold the camera and we made us some lasagna and, and uh, everybody was too busy eating it. It was so damn good to record all that, but uh, just a lot of fun stuff over there on Patreon. Well, people are going to be eating a lot Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, hopefully you're going to be eating up the good shit we're shoveling out over at WrestleCade. Winston-Salem, North Carolina is going to be our first ever North Carolina trip. Tickets are on sale now right now at brucepritchard.com. And uh, this is going to be a who's who. I don't know if you've seen the roster of all the folks who are at WrestleCade, the the wrestling names from yesteryear. We've pretty much got our pick. This is going to be a fun show. You don't want to miss it. Tickets are on sale now at brucepritchard.com. But I know what you're really fired up about is our trip over the pond, right? Hell yes. Get to go to the homeland. You know, I did my DNA and got all that back, Conrad. And I am going to the homeland. Going to be December 4th in Glasgow, Scotland. December 5th in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Now, Tickets may be gone, but you need to go and, and get these tickets, man, because there's only a few left. Then we're heading over to my other mother country, jolly old England, where December 6th will be in Birmingham, December 7th, London, uh, Bristol on the 8th, and Liverpool, our finale show on December the 9th. And this is not just us in England, because in England we are with Fight Forever Live, and they're going to have a wrestling event as well with guys like Cody Rhodes, Brandy's going to be there, Jimmy Havoc, Flip Gordon, and you may even get a party with The Godfather and Papa Shango. Man, this is the ultimate fan experience, and you can find out all about it. Tickets at BrucePritchard.com. And don't forget, uh, going into next year, you and Eric Bischoff are going to be right there in your hometown of Friendswood, Texas at the Feinerman Sports in uh, Baybrook Mall. That's on Saturday, January 5th. 
you and I will shoot over to Colorado Springs on January 19th. And there's rumor and innuendo of a bro run in there, but January 27th, it's all about the Royal rumble. We'll be in Phoenix there. And let's fast forward to announce something that we haven't officially announced here on the show. March 1st, it's Bruce Pritchard. It's Eric Bischoff. Both of you guys together, something to wrestle with 83 weeks at the Mohegan sun in Connecticut. Our first trip to Connecticut. We've never been there before. Tickets are on sale now at brucepritchard.com. And you can actually shortcut that at stw83.com. So man, 83 weeks, something to wrestle. This should be fun. It's going to be an absolute blast. And it's going to be fun to get back to Connecticut. Um, last time I was in Connecticut was in August, but I lived there for 15 years. So it will be fun to go back to Mohegan sun, see some friends. And I invite everybody to come on out and check us out at Mohegan sun on March 1st. All right. Enough filibustering. Let's talk about why we're really here. Why are we here? William Regal. Come on with it. This is going to be an interesting story. Nobody has a story like William Regal. Is that fair to say? I think that he has an extremely unique and uh, entertaining story. Well, let's see what we can do with it here. Darren Matthews is his real name. And he was born on May 10th, 1968. And he was born over in England. Surprise. I think a lot of people might be surprised by his age though, because we've joked about this before. Aaron Anderson has looked 40 since he was 19 and JJ <laughs> Dillon has looked 50 since he was 29. And so those guys sort of never age. They look the same, but. I probably assumed that William Regal was older than he really is. No, man. He's really a very young man. I think he's just 50 now, but he was, when he first came over to the United States, I want to say he was either 19 or 20, very young man, but he looked, he even looked older then when he was really young. And right. then later on, he went the opposite way with it and started looking, but you know what I mean? Let's talk about wrestling, you know, that he would have been influenced by because as a youngster, I mean, he loved wrestling and wrestling has obviously had a storied history in England, but a lot of us over here in Alabama may not know a whole lot about British wrestling. Chat me up. Well, the big stars in British wrestling back in the day, it was a gentleman by the name of big daddy and big daddy. I say that because last time I was in England, someone continually kept asking, could you tell us more stories about big daddy? And I don't have a whole lot of stories about big daddy, but, uh, his last name was Crabtree, I believe. And he was the big star. He was the Hulk Hogan of the English wrestling scene. And along with a guy by the name of giant haystacks, giant haystacks came over, uh, to WCW many years later as the swamp monster or some kind of really disgusting term, but those were the two big stars. And then you had underneath that, you had the guys that could work because big daddy weighed in at about four or 500 pounds, giant haystacks, same thing, four or 500 pounds. And they were big guys that didn't do a whole lot in the ring. And they had the workers underneath that guys like fit Finley, guys like Steve Wright, who could go and who could wrestle, deliver that part of the show. And then big daddy and, and haystacks would come out and do their, their big man stuff. So let's talk about, uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll talk about his personal life here for a minute. This is all in his book, by the way, which is a tremendous read. Have you ever read Regal's book? Yes, I did. And it was a great read because I knew him and I needed a lot of hardships growing up with Regal or going through the business. It was a lot of ups and downs and it wasn't an easy 
it wasn't an easy trip for him. It's called walking a golden mile. If you'd like to pick it up, it's uh, everywhere online, you know, Google play Barnes and Noble. It's probably on Amazon too. Everywhere you can find a book. I recommend it. I read it in 05 when it came out. I think it's an underrated wrestling book because he's just straight up and really talks about a lot of his personal struggles and challenges. And, uh, it's a great story, but in this book, he's going to tell you about how his mom left him at a very young age and kids at school can be mean. They would tease him. And he would say that turned him into a bit of a bully. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people, you know, would openly talk about the fact that they were a bully as a kid, but it does give you sort of a, a look into the person behind the William Regal character. And he has a hilarious story in here that I know you'll get a kick out of. He talks about one of his earliest memories being when he went to visit the zoo with his buddy and, uh, they start making faces at the gorillas and the gorillas threw a big pile of shit at them and hit William Regal in the face. Uh, and I don't know. It just feels like that's a Bruce Pritchard story all day. Well, no, it, it glob smacked me in the face. I wish I could do a good William Regal because Regal doesn't have the traditional English accent and just talk about it. it gobsmacked him in the face, I believe, was how he had told me the story in a little bit more colorful way than he did in the book. But, uh, well, you ain't never gone to the zoo and had a monkey throw shit in your face. Well, the thing is, I just I didn't know that Sean Waltman ever even went to England as a youth. But there you go. Apparently, he went to the zoo, too. He was just on the other side. Well, do, do, do. Get it? Do, do. Yeah, do, do, do. do. Oh, yeah, I got it. Do, do, do. Uh, hypothetically, you ever been hit in the face by gorilla shit? Yeah, gorilla used to throw shit at me all the time. <laughs> well, of course, um, you know, he it, when his mom leaves, he, he becomes uh, deeper and closer with his dad. And uh, his grandfather as well is probably the biggest influence in his life, or at least that's what he would write in his book. And he was bored in school and, you know, you can imagine what that leads to roll tide. Uh, he didn't really want to become a wrestler though, because he wanted to be rich and famous. And I know there are a lot of guys who get into the wrestling game for money. Guys like Lex Luger have been honest about the fact that they didn't grow up as wrestling fans, but Regal did, uh, he, he wanted to be a professional wrestler. And, um, I think the guys who want to be a wrestler, you know, from the start as a young man, they probably have a better career most of the time. Would you agree? I think that it's the guys that would want to be wrestling on every single night of the week, whether it's in Madison square garden or J Frank Doby high school in front of a couple of hundred people. Those are the guys that just want to do it for the art form. Those are the guys that do it because they love it. And it's not all about the money. You take a Daniel Bryan, you take an AJ styles, a William Regal, those guys just wanted to be in the ring. They wanted to be performing no matter where it was. They, they could perform at the local supermarket and that was performing to them. So they, they love that. And then there's guys that just want to do it when, you know, pay me. I'll perform when, when, when you pay me. So it, it's usually the guys that have that love for the business that's going to shine through and the cream's going to rise to the top in my opinion. What's interesting is his dad took him to the wrestling shows every couple of weeks, uh, to see Dale, Mar Dale Martin shows. And he would say that he got to see all the stars of the day and he 
obviously used a lot of those guys as inspiration and even worked some of their stuff into his act. Giant Haystacks, Big Daddy, Kendo Nagasaki, the Royal Brothers, Nick McManus, Cyanide Sid Cooper. He still used a lot of their influences for years and years, but he decided at a relatively young age, he didn't want the regular sort of nine to five life. He wanted to be a professional wrestler or even a clown or a comedian. And I think most would say he probably became a combination of all three of those during his run in WWE. But once he really starts to get more serious about it as a teenager, maybe 16 or so, he first sees dynamite kid and he was obviously an inspirational wrestler to everybody who happened to cross him. And we've talked about dynamite a little bit here on the show, but I don't know that he really gets the credit he deserves. Is it because it was sort of a pre cable era when he was really cutting his teeth? You know, he just didn't have enough national exposure. Why don't you think people talk about dynamite more because those wrestlers who saw him live, you know, still list him as an influence today. Yeah. And that was, that was the case. People that were able to travel the world and see a lot of the different stars all over the world that were territorial. You saw guys that were doing innovative things that you'd never seen before with the advent of television and the advent of cable and the internet where now you can see everything They're They're not as special uh, dynamite for guys that were able to witness him live and be around him. He was an innovator and I dare say the first time that you saw him, your reaction was usually, holy shit, where the fuck did this guy come from? Because he was doing things that no one had ever seen done before. And he was mainly doing them either in Europe, Japan, or Canada. And for the most part, those of us here in the States, we'd never seen him other than hearing about this guy from Japan. And uh, But he was very influential for those who could see him and enjoy him. Well, eventually he finds his way into Wolverhampton and he's going here to see wrestling. So he discovers that he really likes the villains. He likes rollerball Rocco fit Finley. Those are some of his influences. Once he really starts to get serious about it and eventually gets his first gig in wrestling, putting up the ring and that's pretty old school. And I guess we should mention that a lot of the shows in Europe at this time, especially in England are happening at like carnivals and that sort of thing still in this era. What do you, what is it about putting up the ring that, um, I mean, it really is sort of like the starter job in wrestling for decades. Was it not? Yes and no. It, to me, it was an honor to put up the ring. And to me, it was something that as a professional wrestler, I liken it when I would talk to a new class of beginners and people in developmental. And I'm the one that instituted that in, in developmental early on. I used to like to have everyone tear down the ring and then put it back up and have the crew, the developmental crew that was a part of that school be the ring crew. Because I liken it to packing a parachute. When you go skydiving, you pack your own chute. You learn how to pack your chute because that chute is the difference of living or dying. If you pack it correctly and you pull the cord, everything comes out right. You learn and you put a lot of emphasis into packing that chute right. And I think the same thing goes to setting up a wrestling ring. You do it right so that no one gets hurt. You make sure that everything's even. You make sure you know how your equipment goes together. 
And if you do it right, then you have a perfectly set up ring and everything's safe, not just for you, but for everybody else. And if something takes place in the middle of the ring that the ring breaks, everybody on that card should be able to be able to go out and fix the damn ring. So I, I'm a big one for, yes, guys learning how to set up the ring. And I've, I've been setting up rings since I was 12 years old. Well, eventually he decides, man, this is what I want to do, but I need to get in shape. There's no wrestling clubs there. So he goes to a boxing club to try to get fit and, uh, considered himself when he started a fat kid. So he needed to really work on trying to drop the weight and get into the right kind of shape. And he was determined to really do whatever it took to learn. So he built his own ring made out of plywood and a blanket on top. He was just improvising, but he was trying to really get down what he was seeing and just sort of mimic it on his own. And I know that that's not really the traditional way to train, but almost everybody does something like this when they're first getting started. Don't they? You have to, and you, you, because it's so hard to get in, especially back in the day, it was so difficult to get someone to notice you. And even if they did notice you to take the time to go in and train you and show you how to do certain things. So you had to watch what they do, try and mimic it exactly. And then after a while you could kind of figure out, okay, well, this is how you take a bump. This is how you do an arm drag. This is how you grab a a side headlock. It takes time. It, it, It just takes time and you work with what you have and you build, if you don't have it, then you build it. I guess we should mention here that while he sort of, uh, considered himself a fat kid, he was a tall, is a tall dude. He's like six foot four, but a lot of fans may not realize that because he would say that as a villain, he thought it was his job to sort of crouch down and look smaller than he was because he wanted all the fans in the audience to think they could personally beat him up. And the challenge with this is because he considered himself a fat kid. He wasn't exactly, uh, athletically gifted. He had to really work at it. What do you, uh, how would you describe William Regal's physique and stature? Husky. No, <laughs> you know, uh, when I looked at him, first of all, yes, he, he did hunch over. And that was from the old Carney school where they would teach, you, you know, get down and you want to be, you know, you want to give the appearance, give the illusion that you're either the same size as your audience or maybe a little bit smaller for the heel. Um, for the baby face, you wanted larger than life, big heroes, so nobody would fuck with them at all. But yeah, Regal worked that way, and it was it's interesting because that's the old kind of carnival, the old school way of working and, and way of uh, presenting yourself. Well, man, if you're looking to be a little old school, you need to check out Blue Chew because Blue Chew is going to be old school for your gimmick, man. Come on. Remember when you were always ready to go? Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed by going to bluechew.com. That's blue like the color, and they bring you the world's first chewable with the same FDA approved active ingredients as the big boys, Viagra and Cialis. So you know Blue Chew works. Maybe best of all, though, you can take these anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And because they're a chewable, they're going to work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you're going to be ready whenever the moment calls for it come on it's prescribed online and it ships straight to your door in a discreet package so there's no in-person doctor's visit no waiting in the pharmacy no more awkwardness and because it's made in the usa and since blue chew both prepares and ships direct 
It's much cheaper than a pharmacy. Bruce, tell us about your super hard dick. Thanks to blue chew. Well, Conrad, uh, I have friends and I can always tell when my friends get their brand new shipment of blue chew because they've got a big smile on their face because it works instantly and they absolutely love it. And sometimes I could tell by their wives and or their girlfriends look on their face. If you know, sometimes they're happy, sometimes they're pissed off and just dead wore out, but blue chew works. And right now we got a special, special deal for our listeners. And you always like it when I do this, but if you visit bluechew.com. You're going to get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code WRESTLE. Wait, 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 wait. Are you giving stuff away again for free? You get your first shipment absolutely free. All you got to do is pay $5 for shipping. That's it. And all you have to do to get it, Conrad, is you go to bluechew.com. That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. Use our promo code WRESTLE to try it for free just pay five dollars shipping are you suggesting right now that if our listeners want to hashtag super hard dick and they think these claims are too good to be true that for five dollars they can show off their super hard dick or just you know what if you're just curious about it and and wondering does this you know really is it good or is it not man it's it's free the shipment's free pay well your order is free. Pay $5 shipping. And all you got to do is use our promo code wrestle at bluechew.com. Cause blue chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. And by the way, it works. So I guess we should, uh, get back to William Regal here. Let's see if I can make a transition. It's not too hard. Um, <laughs> and let's go from, let's go from bluechew.com promo code wrestle to you know, Darren used to like to <laughs> <laughs> ponder the carnival grounds as a barker. There we go. Uh, chat me up. Uh, he, he's, uh, been introduced for years as being from Blackpool, England. Uh, and uh, allegedly that locally over there is some heat, but I'm from Alabama. I don't know why there would be heat in being from Blackpool. Chat me up. I don't know why there's really heat either, but I think it sounds cool when you're looking at various places to be from in London and, and it's so stereotyped London or in England. We see immediately us Americans, we just go, well, he's from London because they talk funny over there. However, for the English, I guess there's a little heat there with Blackpool. But for me, I think that it was a cool and sounded cool. And it sounded like someplace a heel would come from Blackpool. He's from Blackpool. So chat me up, you know, one of the, um, one of the, one of the interesting things I like to talk about whenever we get to a, a sort of a character profile like this is a guy's first match. And in this era, things were done a little differently in that sort of carnival routine that they were doing. What can you tell us about William Regal's first dalliance in professional wrestling? Well, the, I believe that his very first match was something along the lines of they were at the carnival and it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's like an open challenge to the crowd. They would bring the wrestlers out and they would parade the wrestlers out kind of like you would a burlesque show, except it's a bunch of old hairy men and stuff. 
and then they would take on challengers from the audience. So usually you would pick a small guy and a big guy and they would be plants and you would watch the small guy work with the wrestler and he would kind of get in there and, and, uh, have a pretty good showing of himself so that people in the audience start thinking, well, that little guy can go that long with that professional wrestler. Maybe I could do it. Maybe I could get the hundred dollars and they would offer, I don't know what the prices were like, maybe three rounds. If you last the, the first three minute round, you get a hundred bucks, another 300 rounds, you get 200 bucks. You last all three rounds, you get $500 something like that. And it was a carny deal. And the old carnies would work with the guys that were plants, make them look good, let them go a couple of rounds. Obviously they didn't get the money. They would maybe get 50 bucks for the whole thing. If that, but the other guys, they would beat in the first round and just totally annihilate them. So Regal was a plant in the audience and he was one of the smaller guys and got in the ring and, the guy that he worked with just basically beat the living shit out of him and stretched him nine ways from Sunday just to see whether or not this kid's ever going to come back. Does he have it? Is he tough enough to be in here with us? Can he, can he go the distance? And so they beat you up pretty good and, uh, cast him off and see if he's going to come back. And, and Regal came back. It's interesting to me though, that they did the whole step right up and I'll take on all comers and issuing these challenges, but there's plants everywhere. I mean, that to me is like the Genesis of professional wrestling. Is it not? Sure. It is. That's it. You know, it comes from the old, that old carny days. It was a traveling carnival that would go around. You had your tough guys on there and then they would use the people that set up the carnival sometimes as the plants to get in the ring with them. And, uh, People go, yeah, oh my God, I could take him. Every once in a while you'd get a shooter or you'd get some big country strong son of a bitch you couldn't do anything with. But those were few and far between. And you always had your you always had your tricks. That's what I, I tell my son, who's now nineteen, when I used to be able to beat the shit out of him all the time. And then one day, at one point, little some bitch got strong and didn't let me beat the shit out of him anymore. And you go, Rut row. But I still have dirty tricks, so I can win. I don't even know what to say right now. I feel like you just admitted to child abuse in front of hundreds of thousands of people. It's not so much abuse as it is a, a teaching moment, Conrad, a teaching moment, a teaching moment. Okay. It's wrestling. I mean, there are rules except for me. He has rules. I don't have any rules. So let's talk about, um, when he decides to become a professional wrestler, it's 1984. It's right after his 16th birthday. And he's doing whatever it takes. He's working two or three times a day. He's putting up the ring. He's taking down the ring. He's making tea. He's working as a referee, whatever needs to be done. He's doing, but one of the things he would do, or the guys at the time would do to keep themselves entertained as they're making these tours is they would create different names for every show. And he says the other boys always took great delight and dreaming up the daftest names they could for me when I was wrestling. How about this one for a name? Regal first, one of his first wrestling names was Phil his cock from Cockermouth. No, it was Phil his cock from Cockermouth, England. Oh, you were there? Oh yeah. So tell me about your trips to Cockermouth. 
oh, well, you know, it's a wonderfully warm, kind of moist climate, first of all, in deep, deep, deep in the midst of the English countryside. And um, what about Mr. Hiscock? Well, Phil, Phil was, uh, he was a good old boy. And uh, he was from the Hiscock family of professional wrestlers and uh, married, you know, Hurstcock. But she liked the cock of Phil. Yeah. He did quite a few, but it was, yeah, Phil is cock. Yeah. So he's cutting his teeth over here and, uh, you know, it's, it's probably a tough life when you're putting up a ring and taking it down multiple times a day and working matches and basically living out of the back of a van. Uh, it's a challenging life to say the least. This is the epitome of paying your dues. Is it not? Sure. It is, man. You're traveling up, but it's also, uh, an education that you can't get anywhere else. And it's an education of real life, real people. It's an education and you may not have a whole lot, but what you've got, you really cherish and you, you learn how to deal with the human psyche and every single day is a different adventure and you learn how to survive. And I think that by being able to work like that, being able to be a part of that, it just, there's a lot of lessons there, life lessons that you're not going to get at, uh, college. Yeah. One of these lessons is, um, when the boys are going to rib you and he has a, an interesting story, uh, cause keep in mind, he's a young man. He's, uh, started his professional wrestling career when he's just 16. So he's never had a girlfriend. And the next thing you know, at one of these shows, a girl comes over and says, well, are you going to take me outside then? And he goes, takes her in the back of the van outside and gives her the best five seconds of her life. And then realizes all the boys are watching. And then they start playing his music and announce that he's late to the ring and he sprints into the ring. And one of the other guys gets on the microphone and says, we can't wrestle with a referee. who has got a heart on. This is uh, uh, R A S S L I N. That's wrestling. Gotta love it. Yeah, you know, come on, man. We had fun back in the day. I mean, we did the same thing in spot shows around around the country in a lot of small towns. You, you've got a couple hundred people out there, and you're having fun. So it's uh, now that would be now. I guess it would be harassment. It would be a he too movement or something, but. Uh, be his cock movement. So eventually though, when he's 17, he meets an 18 year old lady and, uh, they go out and they get married 14 months later after their first day. And they're still together. I believe, right? She has put up with so much shit. She's an honest to God saint to chat me up about, cause you know, we don't ever hear about a lot of wrestler wives unless it's Ric Flair. And then we hear about one, two, three, four, five. So chat me up about William Regal and his wife. I, you know, I think it was just true love. And I think that it was two people, two genuine souls that came together and found their soulmate because they truly love each other and have gone through life. And she supported him through the lowest of lows and the highest of highs and right back at him. They have created a beautiful family. They're happy together. 
Well, one day he says that he's talking with Tony Francis and he's reading a wrestling magazine and there's an article in it about an American wrestler called Steve Regal. And Tony says, that's a good name for you. And from there he became Steve Regal. And I guess over in the, uh, American magazines, what they were talking about is the former AWA tag team champion with Jimmy Garvin, Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal. You got any stories about the, uh, the AWA Steve Regal? God, I met him two times in my life. He was an Indianapolis guy. I think he was an offshoot of the Dick, the bruiser wrestling promotion in Indianapolis worked in the Chicago area. He might've even been married to one of bruiser's daughters or something like that. Don't really know, but he was a, a smaller guy, blonde hair, really nice couple times that I ran into him, but I never spent a whole lot of time with Steve Regal back in the day. He has his first televised match in uh, Southport in 1986, which back then that's a, that's a huge deal to be on TV. And, uh, he eventually becomes partners with Robbie Brookside and Robbie is a guy that we've not really talked about here a lot on the show, but a lot of fans of the WWE's current product are probably familiar with that name from down at the PC. You got any good Robbie Brookside memories? I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Robbie Brookside and the way that I learned about Robbie Brookside was from Stephen Regal, uh, William Regal. And he was a guy that he came up with tremendous worker, but Robbie was there. Were, the guys were a lot smaller in England. They used smaller guys. Robbie's physique did not lend him to be in the big time. And we had brought Robbie over a couple of times for tryouts because he was just that good of a worker today. If Robbie were working and in his prime, he would, I think he'd be on the main roster, not just like a two Oh five live. I think Robbie would be on the main roster, but I am happy to say that Robbie is, is training guys at the performance center in, he is a tremendous teacher and I'm glad that we were able to, secure him when we did to come over and help train people because he's got good psychology and really good fundamentals. The, uh, the guys managed to do some different tours, including a tour of Israel in 1987. And we've heard a famous story about the Freebirds going over there. What was it about Israel in the late eighties that wrestling promotions gravitated to cable television? And Israel was able to have cable television. But even before that, they, the, the tape trading and the tape uh, industry was really big. So Houston Wrestling, as a matter of fact, was the very first syndicated show, the best of Texas wrestling, that got over into Saudi Arabia and also got into Israel. Well, shortly after that, uh, Fritz von Erich did it. And Fritz got his show got his tapes over there and they were being syndicated. They were really being stolen is, is what had happened. You'd sell them to one guy to air in one territory and then they would air them all over the place. And the product of that, the guys became huge stars. So the, the talent, if you're wrestling in, uh, you know, the, the Dallas territory, the Houston territory, and later on, even New York, you were a huge star in Israel. 
promoter came in and said, Hey, I'd like to bring you guys over. They looked, they looked at the wrestling no different than they looked at Rick Springsteen or a rock rock band to come on over and perform and huge money. And it was a pretty damn easy tour at the time on that tour in uh, Israel, he strikes up a friendship with Dave Taylor. Who's another British name that we don't talk about much here on the show. I think a lot of people remember him from his run with WCW from 95 to 2000. And he had a couple of stints with WWE very briefly, briefly in 2001, working down as a trainer in Ohio Valley. And then he comes back in 06 and he's working in deep South. Why don't you think Dave Taylor had a run in ring with WWE? I think it comes down to just that dry personality. Outside of the ring, Dave Taylor is one of the funniest, most entertaining guys that you're ever going to run into to sit down and drink beer with him and listen to him tell stories. Entertaining as shit. However, when the red light came on, he became very uptight and not as colorful and not as flamboyant. So it was tough to get the personality of the guy in the bar on television. And people just really couldn't, couldn't relate to Dave Taylor, tremendous technician. God, he was tremendous in the ring. All those guys from that era, Dave Taylor and fit Finley, both, I think, or two stalwart. Steve Wright is another one who was a tremendous technician, but they just, the personality couldn't get him over the, over the edge. Let's talk a little bit about, um, when wrestling sort of took a dip in England. Uh, he would say in 1988, the ax fell no more wrestling on British TV. Most British wrestlers had been on TV hundreds of times, and I'd only done six televised shows. A new man called Greg Dyke had been brought up to uh, take charge of the ITV network. And he simply didn't want wrestling on his channel. It didn't have the right image. That sounds familiar from a WCW side of things, doesn't it? You know, it really does. And it was something that was, you were seeing all over the place, um, even here in the States, but guys looking at their television and saying, ah, we don't, we don't want that damn wrestling stuff on here. Thank God for cable TV and thank God for sky sports, because during this time, ITV was like a network, um, broadcast in England. So everybody got it. They, not everybody got sky sports. We were WWE was on sky sports. So it was a premium channel that they had to pay for. And all of a sudden you have choice and you can watch the traditional English wrestling, or you can watch this brand new import product from the United States with these larger than live characters and these big arenas and crazy outfits and everything else that I think also contributed to the downfall of the British wrestling scene. After this, he decides to, uh, you know, really test his metal across the world. So he starts doing what a lot of guys did in that era and popping over to different countries and, and trying some new things. And one of those spots that everybody stopped was in Germany for auto Ons and the CWA, the catch wrestling association. But Regal would say from day one, for whatever reason, Otto just hated the sight of him. They just did not get along. Uh, we have, we've talked a little bit about auto and the CWA, but I don't know when we will again, chat me up. Did you ever meet auto and what was the rap on the CWA over in Germany? 
I never met Otto and my brother Tom actually worked for Otto in Germany for a while. Otto was one of those old timey guys, big bastard, tough guy, but Otto liked the tough guys. Otto liked the shooters and the guys that could actually go out and wrestle and hold their own. So if you came in and you were a worker, he would usually put you with a tough guy and I keep throwing up Steve Wright's name because he was all around that era and he was a tough guy uh, to beat the shit out of you. And I'll never forget Tom telling me the story about the first time he came in and Tom was a worker and he goes out and he's trying to have a good match and they've got to do rounds. And Steve Wright just ate him up. And after the first round, he came back and in Tom's corner was a guy by the name of Cowboy Scott Hall of NWO fame later on in life. And Scott was like, fuck, man, he's beating the shit out of you. You just got to go out and fuck him up, man. You got to hit him back and fuck him, fight him. And Tom went out in the second round and fought back and got stiff with Steve Wright and started hitting him back and literally fighting him. And all of a sudden, third round, they went out and had a match and they worked together. So Otto liked that. Otto was, was the kind of guy he would reward that if you went out and you fought your ass off and, and actually could wrestle. But um, I've heard both good and bad about Otto. I think for the most part, guys were happy. It was an opportunity. It was someplace to go and be away, and you could disappear for a while and make some decent money. Here's something that a lot of people may not know. In 1991, that's when Steve Regal was first contacted by the WWF. He was not expecting a FedEx truck to roll up in his neighborhood in September of 91. He says it may have even been the first time a FedEx truck had been down that street, but it was a letter from the company asking him to come to their pay-per-view at the Albert hall in October for a tryout. And he says this came completely out of the blue. He had no idea something like this could be on the horizon. And he found out later that his good pal, Terry Rudge was responsible. Lord Alfred Hayes had an office job for the company at the time. And Terry was friends with Alfred Hayes and he hadn't spoken to him about it. And here it comes the invite. He says, when he got to Albert hall, he found Jack Lanza and that was the agent that he was supposed to meet. And he told him to go get something to eat, but food was the last thing on his mind. This is his big chance. He had always dreamed of going to wrestle in America and he wanted more than anything, the opportunity to wrestle for the WWF. And this is a show that a lot of people tape traded for a long time. And people were just all about seeing this show. And now thanks to the WWE network, they've got an opportunity to see some of it. I know you weren't with the company at the time, but Albert hall, what an incredible building, right? Oh my gosh. Yes. Royal Albert hall was in England. That would be akin to Madison square garden, but even more so because it was it was Royal. It was a part of that royalty and it was so beautiful and special to be able to wrestle. There was, that was a big honor and that was pretty damn neat. It was neat for, for us as Americans to be able to go there and perform there. But I can only imagine as an Englishman being able to perform there even, even more so. So that night he wrestled Brian Maxine. And after the match, Jack says, Hey, that was great. 
Come with us to Wembley tomorrow so we can talk to you. So the next day he travels over to Wembley arena to talk to some of the agents and they tell him, we don't have anything for you right then, but we'll let you know when we do. And eventually after some time passes, he gets a call from Mr. Williams who says WCW is coming to tour. Would you like to work with them for a week? And of course he wanted to two nights would be at Earl's court in London. And then one night in Sheffield and then one, one over in Dublin. And the first night in for WCW, his match is with doot, doot, doot. The next night he's working against giant haystacks. This is an interesting, I mean, this is almost like out of a movie at this point when he's not really expecting it. And just when they come over, they invite him for a lifelong wrestling fan. He's got to feel like he had his big break. And then for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And now it feels like he's got a second chance when WCW comes over, right? Sure. And it's another opportunity for the, for the other foreign company to make a name for himself and let everybody know, Hey, here I am. Um, it's a great opportunity for him. And he sees that opportunity. Something I found interesting is it's on this WCW tour. It's the first time he's spoken on a microphone in the ring. He would write in his book. You just don't do that in England or any of the countries I've wrestled in so far. I think that's fascinating to me that. In that era, the only people who were really doing mic work were Americans. Yeah, that's true. But even more so in that era and before that, the only mic work you did was usually in a studio. You didn't address a live crowd. You didn't do it over the PA system. That was something that that Vince did for the shows where he would do a, one interview in front of the people, but he didn't like guys talking on the house mic, nobody really did. That was all saved for TV, you know, save it for the TV, baby. That's where you make your money when you can talk to everybody at home. They already paid their money in here to come on in and see us now. Now we wait. That was different. And it was starting starting to happen because Vince was doing different things with the pits and the live interviews and it caught on. Look, look where we are now. Jesus Christ. <laughs> With every, every show is talking to the audience and on a PA. And one of the first guys to, uh, put him in a spot where he could really do that was Paulie dangerously. He was doing an interview segment in this era called the dangerous zone. And Paul asked the agent Grizzly Smith, Jake, the snake's dad, if he could do a live segment with Regal and Grizz says, yes. Uh, at the end, everybody was pleased, even though Regal would probably not want to go watch it again, he says, but he also takes a minute in his book to really talk about steroids in a way that I don't think a lot of people have in their book. He wrote in my early twenties on occasion, I took steroids. I did steroids because I wanted to get a better body for wrestling and gyms. You meet a lot of bodybuilding types who were very into it, but I was never very interested in bodybuilding. I first took them when I was 19, after which I took them on and off for a while. The first time I took tablets for a day. Next, it was a drug called Dianabol before I went to Hamburg. The following year, I did an injectable drug called Decadurabolin and Parabolin. I would take five Dianabol a day and that worked well for me. And I got very muscular and strong. I never suffered any side effects because I never took very many and not for very long either. Anabolic steroids enable you to recover better from your workouts. You absorb more protein into the muscle, 
when you train and break your muscle down, it will repair it quicker and put more into it. So it gets bigger. When I took them, they never made me feel like Superman. I just felt stronger and was able to train harder. And here's the part that fascinates me. When I was on steroids, I would get my publicity photos done and send them around the world. If a job ever came up where I needed to look like that, I could get back on the steroids, but the choice was always mine. In my career, no one has ever told me I had to take steroids to work for them. I'm fascinating at his candor here. I mean, this is just, this is good stuff that nobody ever really talks about in that he felt like he needed to do it for publicity photos to look good, to get booked, but nobody ever asked him to. And if they booked him based on his appearance, he could always go back to it, but it was his choice. Yeah. And I don't think that, uh, Steve Regal back in those days was somebody you looked at and said, Oh my God, look at that body. I've got to have it. He's so vascular. Um, I don't know that Regal ever had that kind of a body, but at the same time, that was the attitude and guys looking for an edge and looking for something. A lot of guys are on steroids, uh, obviously. And that was, that was the way to get the edge. So he didn't know that steroids were illegal because he bought them legally and he loaded up and on his, this is in Egypt and on his way back into the country in England, he realizes, uh, oh, this is going to be an issue. And you've told some stories uh, about this before on our live shows where guys have gotten themselves jammed up where they had something where maybe they shouldn't have, but he tells a story here when it's time for him to open his case. He is immediately surrounded by policemen with machine guns screaming at him. And he just didn't think anything of it because he bought the steroids legally, but that was Egypt and this was England and he couldn't just bring it back this way. It does feel like if you don't know the laws and the rules and regulations, it's sort of innocent. Is it not? I think it is, but at the same time, In today's day and age, you better know the fucking laws. Um, Yeah, and and during that time, it was something that doctors freely prescribed to you, and it was in some places where you could buy it, I assume, in other countries. Uh, I know in Mexico you could. You could just buy it over the counter. So what's the harm? I bought it over the counter. There was no doctor involved. There was no nothing involved. You can use that assumption but you should be familiar with the laws and, and these, this is a perfect example of, well, fuck, I didn't know. And you, and how, how can you know every single thing that's illegal in your country? There's obvious ones. Sometimes they're not so obvious ones. So let's talk about, um, the WCW booking during a tour in the UK. He hooks up with the American wrestler, Rip Rogers. You got a Rip Rogers impression? No. Well, you got the hell's a what the hell's a Rip Rogers impression? I don't know. Just lots of cuss words and complaining about the business. Hey, fucking kids back in the day, they don't fucking do shit. Half of them can't even suck their own cock, the motherfuckers. <laughs> back in my day, my God, I was out. You had to fucking be able to do that. If you're on the fucking goddamn match, one through four. Half of you better be able to suck your own cock. <laughs> if if Grandpa Simpson had abs, that would be Rip Rogers. Just back in my day, and but you know, Rip Rogers is a great shape. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so far you have you have compared 
Rip Rogers, Ric mm-hmm. Flair, and me to Grandpa Simpson. Well, damn you, clouds. Yeah, that's right. By the way, if you're a wrestling fan and you have no idea who we're talking about, stop what you're doing and go follow him on Twitter at Hustler two seven five four. That's Rip Rogers, and man, <laughs> he is a hilarious follow on Twitter. You just got to keep up with him. He has strong opinions about what wrestling is or should or shouldn't be. And, uh, I mean, he's done it all. So by all means, one of the, uh, one of the unsung heroes of wrestling Twitter, go follow him at hustler two, seven, five, four. So, uh, he's asking, Hey man, uh, how do I get booked with WCW? Have you heard anything back? And Rip says that he had worked for Bill Watts. And so he knows what Bill Watts likes to hear. And since he's the new man in charge at WCW, here's what you should put. You should talk about how long you'd been wrestling, how hard you'd worked, where you'd worked, how hard you trained. And he likes the phrase trained diligently. So he sent a letter with Rip's help. That was exactly what they needed to hear. Just a week after sending it, he called home and his wife said that WCW had called And they had a number for him to call right away. So he calls and talks to Bill's secretary and she asked him when he could start. And they agree that he's going to start in January. And sure enough, he comes to work for WCW on January 25th, 1993. And as they say, the rest is history. Man, how old school is that? He got hired by writing a letter to Bill Watts. Sure. Dude, that was the way it was done back in the day. You would send... You would send a picture, an eight by 10 picture with your name and phone number on the back. And that's it. And promoters would look at it. Hey, looks pretty good. We need somebody to work and call a guy up. Okay. You start on such and such a date, never laying eyes on them, knowing if they could put one foot in front of the other, but they had a good picture or you heard something about them. You'd book them. I love it, man. So, I mean, I guess we should, uh, say that, you know, we're not going to talk about his WCW career a ton here. Uh, I'm sure we'll cover Regal at some point, uh, with, um, Eric Bischoff on that show, but we should tell you that he would have, you know, a run as Lord Steven Regal. And that's probably the first time he was on you guys radar, right? Well, I'll tell you the first time he was on our radar was his debut in WCW. And I happened to see it. And I remember calling Vince right away because he, he looked different. He was a clean cut guy and his re- he, he wrestled differently. He had that English style of wrestling looked like he knew what he was doing. I remember calling Vince going, there's something special about this guy. I like him and he's young. I think he was God, he had to be 20 at the time. At least that's what it felt like. Um, he was probably much older than that. Probably 25 at the time, but it, regardless, he had something unique about him. Even back then, he looked different than everybody with the long hair and all the other shit. Plus he was British. Well, so he gets a run here and he becomes the television champion like four times. That's like the unofficial William Regal belt or so it feels like for a while there. And there is a, a brief run where he's even tagging with your boy, triple H. What'd you think of that? duo you know i i didn't see a whole lot of it uh at the time i, I really don't remember them as is a tag team i remember triple h is jean paul levesque and and regal but i always thought regal was much better as a singles competitor not only is he tagging and doing some stuff with triple h here he's also working with bobby eaton who's becoming 
Earl Robert of Eaton, which is pretty hilarious. Um, what'd you think overall? How would you categorize his run in WCW? Because I think that's where most of us listening first become introduced and familiar with Mr. Regal. I didn't follow a lot of it. I followed his early career. I followed him when he first came in and I thought that he was a hell of a talent and somebody that we could do something with. Um, but from afar and the few times that I would see him every now and then I thought he was, I thought it was good. I thought he was a solid, solid hand. So let's talk about March of 1998. He's uh, fired from WCW and, uh, there's rumor and innuendo that he's been struggling with some substance stuff for several months at that point. And he calls up his old partner, Bobby Eaton to get the number for Jim Cornette, who was working for the WWF. And they called back right away. First, it was Bruce Pritchard and then Jim Ross saying, yes, you can have a job. And he wrote in his book, I'm embarrassed now to think back about it, but I thought I deserved a big job. What do you remember about that call from Regal? Well, I was excited. I called him, uh, to let him know, first of all, to find out what his situation was, why he'd been fired and whatever. I don't even remember what that was all about, but make sure that he had a release to make sure that we could speak to him and to let him know that from our vantage point, we were excited and we felt that we would have something for him on our roster. And that was just kind of the feeling out process because before it goes any further than that, didn't want to get ourselves in a legal situation where he may have been, he may have been fired. He may have breached his contract. Who the hell knows? But if he didn't have a release, you know, there's nothing we could do until he had a release. And that was the purpose for my call. So when you're having that initial call, I mean, what's that sound like on his end? What's he saying to you guys? Well, I, re- I remember, you know, him telling us that, that he had a full release and he would like to come and that, uh, wanted to know what we had for him. And I'm like, well, we don't have anything for you yet until we know that, you know, there's even a chance of you being able to come in. So once he, he got us all the information, he was excited, sounded excited, was looking forward to being able to come in and, and work with our guys. He felt it was a hell of an opportunity. Did you imagine, and that, you know, when you first hear about his availability and you're on the, and you're on the phone with him or whatever, that you're going to use some sort of similar gimmick and presentation, or have you even gotten that far at that point? Really hadn't even gotten that far at that point. What, we knew what, he had talent. What did you think Vince would have thought of him? Well, I think that Vince would have thought that he was boring and it was going to be a challenge to get to that point. Uh, especially during the time with Russo that, that just, if they weren't over the top, it, it was going to be a challenge, but at the same time, I felt confident in what I had seen in Regal at WCW, that he was up to the task that he could pretty much pull anything off. So that was my feeling. If you, if you thought that both Vince's would think that he was boring, I don't know. It's, it's just peculiar to me that you think that, Hey, they're not going to like him, but I still want him. Same thing with Cactus Jack. Okay. Fair enough. So he he's getting over pneumonia at the time, but he also has a four month non-compete, uh, which is obviously in place after he's fired and his non-compete technically could be challenged because he lives in Georgia, which was a right to work state. 
do you remember that even being discussed as to what you could or couldn't do just based on Georgia's local laws? You know, it was a gray area, but yes, Georgia is a right to work state and, and it was always a gray area. However, for the most part, nine times out of 10, we honored the non-competes. It's, it's a uh, bad timing all around though, because he wakes up one morning in April and he's coughing up blood. So he goes to a different hospital and there he learns that this is worse than he thought. Not only does he still have pneumonia, but now he's got a viral infection and a big pocket of fluid around his heart. His lungs are full of blood and he's in really, really bad shape. He's in the hospital for another full week. And this is, um, this has obviously got to be weighing on his mind. He's just been fired. Now he's in the hospital battling for his life. When you guys hear that he's hospitalized like this, does anybody sort of raise an eyebrow? I mean, you know, I know that's not popular, but when you hear, we hear stories that when a guy is, is, is injured, that maybe the company gets the rap that, oh, he's, he's injury prone. You can't trust him. We can't, we can't invest any time on him, but here's a guy who's trying to come in and right away he's in the hospital. Is that different because it's not necessarily an injury that happened in the ring? I, I, I know that's a serious, a silly question, but this is, we're trying to sort of peer into the mind of Vince McMahon who gets mad at his own sneeze and says there is no sick. So chat me up here. No, it was pneumonia and it was just one thing after another. It was, it was kind of like the dominoes falling, but no, there was no thought of that. It was just bad timing and unfortunate, but nobody thought, oh my God, is he going to have pneumonia every six months? It, it was a freak deal and freak timing. That's all it was. Well, I'm not necessarily that, saying that I'm just saying the guy's laid up in, in the hospital and he would even write in his book that while he's there, he's lost 30 pounds. He's gray. He's swollen uh, in the face and looks terrible. And he's going to have to work really, really hard on the stairmaster just to get his wind back because this illness has really sapped him. And fast forward first week of May, he flies to New York and he's driven to Stanford to the Titan towers. He's going to meet everybody, Vince McMahon, Jr. the whole shooting match. And he wrote what happened next is a shocking thing to have to own up to, but it's true. I'd managed to get some pills from somewhere and I've only reconstructed what went on from what people have told me since I can't remember a thing about it. I met Jim Ross and was ushered in to meet Vince, the most powerful man in wrestling. I'll let you take it from here. Woo. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you my, my vantage point. I, I remember, uh, William being in, we had like a little green room for talent outside of JR in my office. I remember walking in and saying hello and thinking, holy shit, are you still sick? You know, what's going on with you? And he says, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. But it was, he was slurring his speech and he was not in a good way. And I remember going into JR saying, is he okay? Should we maybe like, you know, cancel this? No, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. Um, they went into Vince and he passed out on Vince's desk in the middle of the meeting, just fell asleep, passed out. They were talking to him. His eyes were closing and he literally just 
passed out. Not a really good first impression with Vince McMahon in, in Titan Towers. And I, and I think at that point, um, Vince may have written him off at that point, honestly. But we just were... There was something about him, and we fought for him. And he told us that he had had taken too much shit, and that he was on all this medication for the pneumonia, and he wanted to make the trip, and that the all these adverse medications. And we gave him the benefit of the doubt. Now he was writing this book. Steve Austin had spoken up for me. Jim had gone on on a limb to bring me in, and this is how I'd repaid him. Then Jim took me for a meeting with the creative team. I rabbited on talking nonsense. They were all looking at me wondering what on earth this prick was doing there. It was my first trip to Titan towers and it was all a blur of the actual meeting. He says that he didn't even remember passing out. He says, I can remember coming to and Vince smiling at me saying something like being sick must've really knocked you about. Yeah, I agreed. Not knowing I'd passed out. And he even wrote this in his book. And this is a powerful sentence. Jim Ross had never spoken to me about it, but I know he's told others. It was one of the most embarrassing moments in the business. It was, and it was, it was sad. The other, you know, the other thing that he leaves out, he was in horrible shape. He, he still looked horrible from the pneumonia, but I mean, physically he was, looked like he hadn't seen a gym in six months. And that was another thing that Vince picked up on pretty quick and was like, God damn, does he even work out? So it was, you add on that and and passing out in the middle of a meeting with Vince, not a good thing. Yeah, it was terrible. Well, if you feel like you look terrible, maybe you're a little softer, fatter, lazier. Time for ageless male max. I can even get you a lot cockier. We're talking about ageless male max and the fact that it's going to boost your man boosting formula. What are we talking about? Total testosterone. That's right. You can use ageless male max to boost your total testosterone while also promoting greater increases in both muscle size and twice the reduction in body fat percentage than just exercise alone. And how's this? You even get a 64% boost in your nitric oxide production. That's going to help you get cocky in the gym or in the bedroom. Tell them all about it, Bruce. Uh, You can take your manhood to the max by trying your first 30 day bottle. Absolutely free. How much? That's right. Hey, that's right. Listen, all you got to do, Conrad, is just pay shipping and handling a full 30 day supply for free. All you got to do, text the word SLAM, S-L-A-M, to 797979. Now, many testosterone formulas, can can boast about free testosterone, but Ageless Male Max is all about total testosterone. And you can grab your free supply, text 797979, and then enter the word SLAM, S-L-A-M, and if the results are a little too intense, just uh, decrease the use a little bit. Text 797979 and enter slam message and data rates may apply ageless male max. May 10th, 1998 was his birthday. 
and he gets up out of bed and is coughing up blood that covers the wall four feet away from him. He knows he's in trouble. So he heads over to the hospital, but he can't even walk up the stairs without stopping halfway in order to catch his breath. He wrote in his book that he felt like he was falling apart, that he had absolutely no energy and he was white knuckling it for drugs, which he couldn't get. And he couldn't even get out of the house to try to find any. And on top of all this physical sickness, there's the mental sickness. He wanted the drugs and he's written that GHB had been banned, but someone had altered the formula slightly so it could be sold legally. And it was available everywhere in the United States and had essentially the same effects as GHB. And when he found out about it, he started getting it shipped straight to the house and he discovered a place that would send him boxes of the stuff in two pint bottles. And it was the only stuff he could use that would give him a buzz to take the edge off. And eventually he's drinking a bottle a day. He wrote, whatever state I was in, Vince didn't fire me. At the time, I had no idea what any of them thought of me. Vince isn't the kind to tell you. I think I realized, I think he realized I was a good person with a bad problem. You were there when you're hearing that Regal's got all this stuff still going on. That was prevalent the very first time you guys met him in Vince's office, but now it's continuing. Is Vince sort of wagging his finger, pulling the uh, glasses down on the edge of his nose saying, I told you so. What's that like from your side? What kind of goof is he? And I believe that's a quote. However, there were a lot of, it was easy to say it's the pneumonia. It's easy to say that. Because of the sickness, all of these other things are happening. Nobody was looking at the drug problem. Nobody really saw the drug problem because the sickness was there. So we just use that as it has to be the sickness because we had never heard of him having any kind of drug issues, anything like this other than being the model citizen. So this was all new for Darren too. So we continued to give him the benefit of the doubt. So un- unbelievably, uh, Vince doesn't fire him. And I think a lot of people would say maybe that should have happened before he ever even debuted on TV, but it doesn't. And instead the night after King of the ring, 1998 Regal makes his debut in the WWF. Boy, we're going to have some fun with this one. <laughs> he, uh, he goes into the ring with Darren Drozdoff and he wrote, I looked like a bag of shit. I got the win, but it was just a match. The next night I wrestled a horrible match against Tiger Ali Singh at Penn state. And the next day he got a call from the company telling him to go to the training center to get into shape. What can you tell us about this debut? Fucking awful. I remember he wore a singlet and he was so fat but it was, it was really loose fat and it wasn't one thing about Regal was he always looked solid. I mean, he was always in good shape and he always looked solid here. He was, it it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Plus he was off several steps. It was like he was to what normally would take him three steps. He's taking five steps. Mm and tripping and getting his foot caught in the apron and shit like that. It was embarrassing. It was really and truly embarrassing because 
he really hadn't been out of the ring that long and had been telling us that he was working out, that he had been in the ring and he was ready to go. Uh, shame on us for not putting him in the ring, not on television and finding out for sure exactly what we had before we put him out there. So you guys send him to spend time with Dory Funk at the production studios in Stanford. I felt like you were going to say something there. Well, no, I mean, I, he might've been in one of Dory's camps, but no, we, we made him come to Stanford to basically be in the ring with Tom and, and, uh, I think Kurt and whoever the hell else was there at that time. But it was, he was living in Stanford, staying out, staying at the hotel and had him at the ring every friggin' day. Rhino was there. Test is there. And believe it or not, Teddy Hart was there. Eventually though, when he gets to go home, he says he's just a complete hermit who does nothing but sit in his bedroom and drink this renutrient, this over the counter GHB. I was out of my head on it all the time. He wrote to such an extent that Chris and I were living separate lives out of my head. I staggered into the bathroom and I put my weight on my damaged ankle. It went to the side as I went down and I felt something in my leg pop. I'd managed to ba- to break both the ankle and my leg. This is, uh, not a, not a great start snake bit. And it was it, now you asked me this question beforehand when he first had the pneumonia. Now we're thinking, what the fuck did we get damaged goods here? And is, it's this shit that just was kept secret from WCW because he goes from pneumonia to being totally out of, you know, passing out in Vince's office to being totally out of shape for his debut. Now he breaks his leg and his ankle. Now we're beginning to think, okay, what have we got here? But you also want to think that deep down because the human being behind it, um, it always displayed really, really great tendencies and and you, and you really wanted to root for him. So he's a hermit. He's living in his bedroom and he's not moving. So he's just laying in bed and drinking this stuff until he throws up. Then he'd get mad at himself that he wasted it because he threw up. So he would drink more until he threw up again. And the only time he would venture out of the room would be to raid the fridge at night. Once everybody else was gone to bed, he just didn't want any interaction with anybody. And that was his life pretty much 24 seven. And he's just passing in and out of consciousness when eventually the cast comes off. He's starting to heal and Vince McMahon calls and he says he has an idea for him and he asks if he's ready to get back to work. And he tells Vince, yes, but he wrote, it was a lie. I wasn't ready to go back to work. I shouldn't have been allowed within a thousand miles of a wrestling ring. He even admits that he had done no rehab on the foot. And Vince says, we've got this idea for you. You're going to be called the man's man. It's Vince Russo's idea. Yes, Vince, whatever you want. He said, and then he apologized to Vince for everything that had happened. And Vince says, you've just had a bit of bad luck. That's all. And Regal says, that's just what he wanted to hear. Were you in the room when they came up with man's man, or this is first pitch chat me up about this. No, I wasn't in the room. I, I had heard it. It was in, it was Vince Russo's idea. I got it pitched to me by Vince McMahon. who was, he's going to be a man's man. We'll put him in flannel and he'll like chop trees down. And 
be this tough, rugged son of a bitch. But really, he's just this proper Englishman and the dichotomy and, and, and it'll be great. Okay, I don't get it. And then we did the vignettes with him squeezing the oranges and, and the axe, and it just was. I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. Regal wrote, I was told to go and get stuff like checked shirts and cut off jeans. And I was to go to Stanford where he'd make some vignettes to introduce this character. We went to the house of one of the producers somewhere in Connecticut with woods behind it for the filming. And I chopped down trees. Whose house was that? Uh, I think it was hotties or uh, chambers. One of the two. Were you there for those? No. I squeezed oranges into a glass and then I shaved myself with a cut through a razor. Then I was taken to TV and all I can remember is the first time the man's man was on TV. X-Pac was the European champ at the time. And I hit the ring on him. This man's man gimmick was something I really hated doing, but I was willing to do it because I wanted to keep my job. Pretty famous vignettes. what do you think of the entrance music though? He's a man. He's a man's man. Fucking horrible. I, I hated the whole thing because I, it was, in my opinion, it was, okay, let's make him a comedy character because we haven't been able to do anything with him all this time. Bruce and JR are high on him. We'll fucking show them. Uh, that's not the case, but it's that's what I felt. So I guess I should mention around this time, he has a sleep study done where they you know, hook him up to wires and somebody watches him sleep. And at the end, they put him on Klonopin, which mixed with Soma's would make him unable to speak. He can't talk at that point. And one night he's supposed to be cutting a promo on the mic, but he's slurring his words and has to wrestle Goldust. and Goldust is sympathetic and tries to help him through the match. And it's just a train wreck. He's in this uh, world title tournament at survivor series in 98 against X-Pac which we're going to be covering eventually Meltzer would be pretty critical of it. He would say in a match, so illogical, it should have been booked in WCW. The only good thing about Regal's presentation thus far is his entrance music and his facials, his work, which had been terrible up to this point improved where it was decent in the end though, uh, Meltzer didn't love it. He gave it three quarters of a star. We're going to talk about this and, and the silliness that followed. Uh, when we cover this, uh, pay-per-view later this month, but I do want to mention the next night on raw regal versus Godfather never takes place. Uh, Godfather gets his shtick going and then regal comes out with the entrance music. Godfather offers regal two hoes and, uh, well, what happened? Well, there, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of ugly and he, Took the hose. Wouldn't you take the hose? He eventually offers him all three. And he says, I'm from England, but I'm not Elton John and accepts. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Godfather says he didn't think he'd accept because he thought everyone from England. Well, and here comes the brawl. Uh, Regal would write. I was the man's man for about five or six weeks. I think life meant nothing to me and I didn't care about anything. I was 30 years old. Looked like death. And might not have been far away from it. It might have taken just one more disease for my whole system to shut down. Did you guys know how unhappy he was with the gimmick, or is he just soldiering through it all? You know, he was soldiering through it. 
he constantly was coming up with other ideas, which is another way of saying I'm unhappy and I really hate this man's man gimmick. I want to do something else. How about this? So we were getting that, but it was something that, that Russo and Vince wanted to do. And by God, they were going to carry through with it. They felt that was the only way to get William Regal over. Eventually though, uh, it's time. JR and Briscoe brought him into the office and have a talk with him. And Regal explains everything that's going on. He says, I told him I was so messed up because I hadn't been able to sleep for months, which he says was the truth, but he didn't tell him the reason because he's guzzling this fake GHB all the time. And he says they were willing to believe me and my wife was ready to leave and take the kids. So I told him that I told him about all the bad things that were happening to me. And I just didn't think they were my fault. And then they told him he had to report to the Talbot recovery center in Atlanta to talk to someone to see if he had a problem. He says he went in and bluffed his way through. He told them the answers they wanted to hear. But when he showed up back to work at a dressing room in San Diego, Jack Lanza said he had to call Bruce Pritchard right away. And when he did, he wrote in his book that you told him what he didn't want to hear quote, listen, People don't want to work with you. You're a danger to them and you're a danger to yourself. You've got to go into rehab. Is that pretty much how it went down? Exactly how it went down. What had happened. And again, I go back to prior to coming in, you hear about guys, you hear the rumor and innuendo that this guy's a good guy, but he may have a problem. This one drinks too much. This one takes too many pills. This one smokes too much pot. This one likes the uppers and you address it. I mean, you, you bring it up to him and address it. We had never heard those things about Regal when he came in. So a lot of this, there were a lot of excuses. There were a lot of things to blame it on. Well, it's the pneumonia. It's the broken ankle. It's the sickness. It's, it's all these other things. Then when he does come clean, partially, he comes clean on, on part of it with the sleep and I'm taking this and, and the combination is brutal. He leaves out the nutrient part of it. So you, you, you're rooting for him all along. It got to the point in the ring that people said, I'm not getting in the ring with him because he can barely walk to the ring. And you hear this from the road and it's like, okay, you get an agent you say, how's Regal tonight? No, he's fine. He's fine. But then when he gets in the ring, whatever takes place from that time and the blood starts flowing, it's, he starts stumbling and bumbling and the boys don't want to be in the ring. They don't want to get hurt. And we sure as hell didn't want him to get hurt either. It was time. Plus, the feedback from the Talbot Center there in Atlanta was, yeah, you know, he said this, he did that, but we think there's something more. So they felt they were being worked. And and. That's their business. That's what they do. So they're, they're used to somebody coming in there and trying to work them. And they felt Regal was working. So they said, man, it's time. You got to go now fly home and go check yourself in. He goes back to Atlanta. Once again, Talbot recovery center. He's there for a four day evaluation where they put him in a hospital, which is sort of half drying out half psych ward. And after the four days, they tell him he's going to have to be there for a few weeks. And he's furious. He gets you and Jerry Briscoe on the phone 
swearing up and down that they had to get you out of there. Do you remember that panicked call from him? Oh, we had plenty of them. He, he was convinced he could kick it on his own. He didn't need to be in rehab and he would come and check in when he was in town, but the best rehab for him was being on the road and working. The feeling was that the professionals felt that he needed to be in. And by this point, he, we, we couldn't take the excuses anymore. Said either you go to rehab or we don't have anything for you. Well, let's talk about, um, you know, his mentality at the time is he didn't think that you guys would let him stay the full 14 week course, which is what Talbot's recommending because he thinks you guys want him back at work, but he would write. In fact, the company was doing all it could to help me. I just couldn't see it. And he was ready to get back and just do whatever to get out of here. So he finally gets out and goes back to England. And they agree Talbot does to let him loose, but they also say they're going to be in touch with the world wrestling federation. When you find out that he leaves early, that's not a good sign. No, it's not. And it was, it was tough because you, you try to help people and they don't want the help and they're not willing to put the work in to fix themselves. So you don't, there's a part of you that wants to shake them, go down there and grab them, but they're adults and you can't do that. So he had, had said, well, he goes, if I go to England, I'll get my shit straight and blah, blah, blah. Um, allowed him to do it. So as soon as he's out, he starts to sort of justify all of this again. He says, you know what you need? Some of that renutrient. That's all. It's not a drug, right? I mean, you can buy it in a health food store. They wouldn't sell it in a health food store if it was a drug, right? So he's drinking it all the time again. And he and the wife go back to England. And he says, it's not long after he arrives at his mother-in-law's house that he goes and finds a drug dealer. He knows and gets a whole bag of goodies, Valium, Nubane, and another drug, which is an injectable that puts you to sleep instantly, which he thinks is exactly what he needs because he hasn't been able to sleep. And in the two weeks he was home, he says he brought 510 milligram Valium and by the time he boarded the plane back to Atlanta, all but a handful were gone. He was taking up to 40 a day. And that's when the shit really hit the fan. He wrote a couple of days before leaving for England, I had agent Jerry Briscoe on the phone, Steve, you have to go back into rehab. And he would argue, no, I don't need to go. And Briscoe would continue. Yes, you do. You've got to, these doctors are professional people and they know what they're talking about. We paid for you to do this evaluation and now you can't keep your job with us unless you go to rehab for 14 weeks. And Regal says, I can't do that, Jerry. That's all over with. I'm not going to do that anymore. It was just a stage I was going through and Jerry persists. Steve, you've got to go in. You're a drug addict and an alcoholic. Regal would write in his book. There was no arguing with him. They wanted him to go back in on December 28th, but he wasn't having that. He wouldn't be back from England until January 2nd. So they said I had to go in on the fourth. I knew rehab was there when I went back, but I can't say my behavior on that trip was one last determined blowout. This is, uh, I just can't imagine that Vince has patience for all of this behind the scenes. What's the conversation like when you guys are trying to explain why this guy's even still around? We wanted to, we wanted to help him. 
and we had him. He, he was in our grasp. He needed help. You, you don't just, um, we hadn't given up. I, we eventually do give up, but, but at this point, man, we just were not ready to give up on him and wanted to see him come out the other side because we felt that it was still new enough and that this addiction problem was something that had, that had come on in the last year or so, or at least that's what we believed and thought if we could just get him in that it's going to be the help that he needs. So it was belief and we really wanted to help him and we really liked him as well. So Vince wasn't happy about it. And and Vince was determined if he doesn't go to rehab and come out the other side, there's not a place for him here. If he doesn't go to rehab, we don't have anything for him. He's constantly calling both Hugh and Briscoe from rehab saying, I got to get out of here. And the doctors on a conference call are even saying, yeah, he's not getting it. And he's full of denial. And he would say, no, I was getting it. Everyone was just against me. Now in years since he recognizes that was silly. He does finish the treatment though, gets out of there, but almost immediately has another relapse with renutrient and winds up back in the hospital. He's back in this same rehab facility. And during the first week back in, there's a conference call with you and Briscoe and you guys get straight to the point. What happened? Well, the very first, the very first thing that he did was they, what it was is you go from the inpatient to kind of like a halfway house in the halfway house. Now you're open, you're, you're free to a point. You still have to check in, but you're in the house with other people that are in the same position you're in. He went to the vitamin store, uh, GNC as a matter of fact, and goes in to get his supplements and sees the renutrient there and bunch guys gets a bunch of renutrient, goes back, guzzles it, passes out. They think he's dead. Uh, they call the ambulance and everything and they put him back into rehab. So he's back in, you know, he's basically been cleared and checked out to go to the halfway house. He ODs technically while he's still in rehab on this fucking renutrient ODs passes out to where they think he's almost dead. They take him back to the, uh, facility and dry him out again. And that's when, uh, we had to pull the plug. It's like, you're not helping yourself. And if you can't help yourself, we we've done all we can to help you. We've we put you in this hospital. We put you in rehab. Um, I hate to tell you this, but we got to let you go. And you need to, and and we'll pay for the remainder of the rehab, but you don't have a job on the other side. It was totally the right thing to do. He wrote, they stressed. It doesn't mean the door is closed. Go and sort your life and you're welcome back. He wrote that it was hardly a great surprise. He thanked them for all they'd done and they left on friendly terms. And that's in April of 99. And he says, after getting out, he wanted to go to ECW. But he's called several times and they never called back. And Darren asked DDP if he could help him get back in the WCW. A few weeks later, he got a call from our pal, Dave Penzer, the ring announcer who was in a car with Eric Bischoff and Dave told Eric all Darren was going through. And Eric told him, I've always liked Steve. Tell him to give me a call. 
He ends up getting released in February of 2000. Russo had come in and wasn't using him. And JJ Dillon told him he wasn't going to be used enough for the money that they were paying him. So they let him go. So now he calls triple H to say, look, I'm totally clean and sober. I've got a lot more left in me. Whatever's needed. I'll do it. Just give me a chance. I know I can do it. And he said, he'd call back and within 10 minutes. He did saying he'd spoken to Vince and yes, he could have a job. Someone would be in touch in the next couple of days. What are your memories of him getting a second chance here? I was happy he was getting a second chance because again, we had always believed in him and thought that, uh, he deserved a, a second chance. So many other people had gotten second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances and felt Darren deserved one as well. So we were happy to, to welcome him back. So he sent down to the Memphis developmental territory and he's supposed to be there six months before they bring him up. And that all starts on March 7th. While he's down there though, the match that got everybody talking happened at the Brian Pillman Memorial show. And it was a match he had with Chris Benoit that gets rave reviews from everyone who's ever seen it. Did you ever see that match? Yeah, I did. And it was, it showed that he, he was able to go again. It was the Steven Regal of old, uh, the, the young kid that came over from England and he was working his ass off and he looked great. After he finishes up in Memphis, he's doing house shows. And then one day Vince calls him into his office and lays out the plan. Quote, you're going to be the goodwill ambassador. You're going to go out and wave and smile at people. You're going to tell them how to live their lives. You're going to tell the American people how to become more civilized and they are going to hate you for it. How did that whole thing come to be? Vince wanted to do something different with him. Didn't want him to just come back and be a wrestler. He wanted to dump some heat on him and felt that by giving him more of a talking role and an, and an authoritative role that it's an opportunity to do more with him. Don't have to wrestle every week on television, but you get exposure every week on television. The thing that impressed me the most during this time is after Vince tells him this and tells him what he needs to do. Regal went to a tailor and had all these three thousand, three, four, five thousand dollar suits made, custom tailored, uh, so that he he could look the part. He says, look, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do this, I'm going all in. He goes, I gotta look the part and then I'll be the part. So he he really busted his ass to be the best that he could do or that he could be and was ready to do whatever it took to succeed. So the following Monday, he does it live for raw. He's out at Steven William Regal and makes his debut as this goodwill ambassador. And now he's got Chris Jericho added to the skit. He comes along during the etiquette class and with one swipe cleared all the cutlery off the table. And now they're going at it. Uh, he thought, Hey, this ambassador idea, it's going to work. And he found himself listed as William Regal. That was his new name. And he says that Shane McMahon explained to him, the company already had too many Steve's. He says he kind of liked the name because it was his grandfather's name. And it felt like it gave him a fresh start. Chat me up about William Regal. Well, that's exactly why we had Steve Austin and I don't know how many other Steve's, but Steve Austin was the main reason. And William sounded more proper versus, you know, Steve. And when you give him William Regal, it just felt a little more proper and a little more English. On October, October 16th, he beat Al Snow to win the European title. 
And I think everybody can see that coming. He's basically your new Davy boy here. Is he not? No, he was a heel. So it just added more to it. And he was plus he's European. <laughs> Only European can have title. That's what I mean. You know, it felt like every time you guys were going over, it's like, oh, we got to put, uh, got to put a belt on Davy and let's put him on last. Oh, this guy's European. Give it to him too. Uh, on the October 30th raw, he's doing an interview running down Boston for throwing tea into the, uh, into the water 230 years ago. And, uh, he's going to read a list of 127 things that would improve Bostonian lives, but the undertaker comes out and gives him the last ride. And that gets us to survivor series. William Regal would retain the European title over hardcore Holly in five minutes and 49 seconds. And, uh, it only gets half a star. I don't know why it wasn't very well reviewed, but he's back. He's uh, performing the role. Is everybody sort of taking a wait and see attitude or are people feeling like, no, this is a different dude. Now he was a different guy. When he came in, he, his eyes were clear. He was their first one there. He was coming to production meetings. He was doing anything above and beyond. So he was constantly asking questions. He was studying his stuff. He had suggestions. Plus, he looked great. I mean, he had gotten physically in shape and was making a commitment. So you could physically you could physically see the change, and then you could see the change in, in how he was to work with and how he was to deal with. And it was a good change. The rebellion pay-per-view goes down on December 2nd in Sheffield, England. And instead of Regal winning here, instead he drops the European title to crash Holly, uh, on the commentary, both Jr. and Taz are referring to him as Steve, which I guess is going to be common for a little while since they all knew him as that for so long star and a half, but a couple of days later, he wins the belt back from crash on raw. And now he's the European champ again. Let's fast forward to November 26th. There's a strap match with him and Steve Austin on SmackDown. Of course, Austin wins on the 18th of December. Regal would beat Steve Austin by DQ. He's uh, using a neck breaker and has the pin for like 10 seconds, but there's no referee to count the pin. Regal's about to hit Austin with the belt. Austin stuns him. Referee Tim white gets up, sees Regal laid out and Austin with the belt and just assumes and DQs Austin talk to me a little bit. Cause we mentioned it briefly before he went in to meet with Vince, Steve Austin had sort of vouched for him and they were old rivals and running mates in WCW. What was their relationship like during all of his trials and tribulations? Cause he's a top guy here. And now a guy that he sort of put his neck on the line for is really not, uh, not doing right by his friend here. Well, Steve supported him and Steve Austin supported Regal. They were friends and he was trying to help him all along the way. And also as far as working together, they enjoyed working together because it was something different for Austin. He got a wrestle and Austin enjoyed that wrestling and he enjoyed wrestling with Regal because it was just such a different style and they had a good time working together. And I think they had some great matches. On the December 29th raw is the number one contender match. Stephanie McMahon, believe it or not, is the special guest referee and Regal beats Austin. The finish would see Austin grab Stephanie by the hair to make her count, but that allowed Regal to schoolboy him. And of course, Stephanie does a fast count. 
a couple of days later, Austin just destroys Regal backstage, laying him out with a pipe. Regal's even juicing in the process and doing a stretcher job. On January 8th, Regal's going to come out with a pipe, but Austin beats him to the punch, clocks him with a chair, and that leads to an Austin angle fight. And a few weeks later, Regal is diagnosed with two herniated discs in his back. Any sort of heat on anybody or any particular incident, or is this just one of those deals where it's accumulation of all these years of bumps he's been taking? You know, it was an accumulation because it wasn't just one injury. It was one of those nagging injuries that continued to get worse. It wasn't something that, oh shit, that was it. So they chalked it up to an accumulation of injuries all over the years. And you forget, he started working when he was 16 years old. So he wasn't, you know, where most guys would start either much later teens or in their early twenties shit. By the time he's 20, he's a four year vet and it was an accumulation of everything. Let's get to the Royal rumble, January 21st. He comes in at number 21, doesn't eliminate anybody. And then is thrown out by a test the next night test beats regal for the European title in just a minute and 28 seconds. And of course we know that's because of the neck injury. Meltzer would even report that he had been suffering for, from a sore neck for five or six weeks. And it turns out it was a bulging disc between five and six. And, uh, that caused a stinger like effect down his right arm whenever he would take a bump. So fast forward to the February 8th SmackDown and Vince is interviewing with Trish and Regal out there. And the story is they're going to pick two guys, one representing triple H and one representing Austin. And the winner would have his guy be able to pick the stipulations for no way out. They pick Billy Gunn to represent Austin and Jericho to represent triple H at the end of the segment, Regal got to kiss Trish. Uh, this is a, a Vince McMahon style storyline. How did the, or why did the regal kissing Trish thing need to happen? God damn. You need some sexuality. Everybody loves sexuality. That's all just a little gaga. Uh, this is going to lead to some fun skits here on raw. Uh, the next raw Vince comes out and before Vince goes to attack Al snow regal comes out and regal still acting as if Trish Stratus is his girlfriend. And, uh, I don't know why, but that's kind of fun. Uh, let's get to no way out. 2001 Regal's not wrestling, but Stephanie McMahon would pitch pin Trish Stratus in eight minutes and 30 seconds. And Vince set it up telling Regal quote, you know what to do, but Regal had no idea what that meant. Um, I don't really understand why Regal was the right guy for this storyline, but whenever you're programmed with the McMahons. It means they've got some confidence in you and it is an about face from where they were a few years ago. Right? Sure. It is. And, and I'll, I'll tell you exactly why, because Regal was good. And one of the best compliments, uh, I've ever heard for somebody, Brian Gewertz, who was the head writer of raw would say, he goes, you know, William Regal was a, a guy that could make a living as a professional actor. Right. Outside of outside of the wrestling business, he's just that he was that good at everything that he was given. And we now had a completely different, dedicated regal, a clear headed regal that was just wanting to succeed and do every single thing that he could to succeed. So it was he was a joy to work with and all of the shit that you put him in, he made the most out of it. 
and made it fun. Well, how's this for fun? On February 26th, this is on Raw, Vince and Trish are tagging against Regal and Stephanie. And of course, Vince turns on Trish and then they all dump slop on her after Regal gave her a neck breaker. Uh, and a couple of weeks after that, Regal is going to beat Al Snow for the right to become the new commissioner. And about 10 days after that, this is maybe my most favorite skit from this era. Chris Jericho peed in Regal's tea. And of course they show Regal drinking it and selling that it's rather tart. This is uh Vince McMahon stuff. Is it not? Actually, it was Brian Gwertz and, and Chris Jericho stuff. We, we all kind of said, it's, it's shit. It's a natural man. You're left in, left in a room alone with a pot of tea. Of course you're going to pee in it. Doesn't everybody? <laughs> oh the my hell gosh. Hey, Conrad, what the hell do you do when you're left alone? There's a pot of tea there and the thing there. Later in the show, Regal's going to team with Benoit and Kurt Angle to get a win over the rock and Chris Jericho. And uh, I guess we should mention, cause we just talked about him a couple of weeks ago on March 22nd on SmackDown Raven wrestles Jericho for the hardcore title which ends up in Regal's office and they tear up the office and Regal threw coffee in Jericho's face and Raven then hit Jericho with a pan with a pan and pinned him and Regal's so mad about the office being destroyed that he adds Raven to the big show cane match. How do you think that, uh, Regal settling into this commissioner gig so far? Absolutely lovely. And we all loved and Brian loved writing for him. I loved producing him. So it was the best of both worlds. He was the kind of talent that you wanted to write for because you knew that he was going to make it better. So it was, he was doing great. Let's get to WrestleMania 17. Jericho pins William Regal in seven minutes and eight seconds to retain the intercontinental title. And, uh, they get two stars. This is, uh, two of the all time greats here at one of the biggest WrestleManias ever. Uh, why did it make sense for these guys to be the WrestleMania opponents? I guess we should mention that one year after this, Jericho is going to be in the main event for the world title. Well, first of all, they had a, they had a great little issue and I thought the match was excellent. It was different than everything else on the card, but it was a wrestling match. It was solid. They beat the crap out of each other and it was a culmination of a great story. So it was I thought it was a tremendous match and it just was the culmination for their stuff from Jericho pissing in the tea and they just had a great rivalry there and good fodder for each other. Let's skip around and go to the April 19th SmackDown. The winner would have to kiss the loser's flag. Uh, and this is the Texas flag, not the American flag from Bradshaw. And he's taking on William Regal. And of course, Bradshaw wins clean and Regal has to kiss the Texas flag to end the show. Not the American flag, the Texas flag. God bless Texas. Well, in Texas, you know, we're just saying that that's a. On the uh, backlash show on April 29th, William Regal gets the win back up over Chris Jericho. And what was billed as a Duchess of Queensbury match complete with, uh, well, a, a woman dressed as a Duchess at ringside. What the fuck is this? Well, if you're going to have a Duchess of Queensbury, you got to have the Duchess there. Color it up a little bit. And, and it was actually Regal's idea to try and do something different. Do 
do the Duchess match, which was rounds, and it's the way that they do matches in Germany and England, and do something different for American television. And people had never seen it before, but we dressed it up by actually having having the Duchess there. Let's get to the Judgment Day pay-per-view. Regal gets a win over Rikishi really fast, under four minutes. And uh, I guess we should mention that um, Rikishi is going to be leaving here with a shoulder injury, and that's the reason it's it's over so quickly. But after this, our our hero, Mr. Regal, he's doing a lot with Tajiri on TV. I need to hear how in the world does that come together? It is an odd pairing, but it worked. Well, during this time, Paul Heyman was a part of the creative team. And Paul, as I've stated before, sometimes it can work to your detriment to have someone pushing you all the time if they're doing it to the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong way. So Paul was constantly, all we need to do is put Tajiri in super crazy in a match, 45 minutes, and they will tear the house down. That will be the pay-per-view main event. And Vince would be looking at him like, two guys don't speak English. What the fuck am I going to talk about? if you will only put Tajiri in the ring against super crazy. Now here's, here's a funny one for you. Tajiri was, I hate to say this, but I'll use it. Tajiri was one of my guys. Tajiri was a guy that I'd known from Victor Quinones and, uh, he had traveled all over the world. I, I knew him from Japan. I knew him from Puerto Rico and Mexico. Tajiri was, my translator in Mexico. Okay. But when Tajiri was in the States, no English. Okay. <laughs> Very little English. So he would kayfabe and I used to, you know, like fuck with him. It's like, son of a bitch, you would go with me in Mexico and translate from Spanish to English and back and forth for me. And he goes, I uh, understand you in Spanish, but he would say he couldn't speak English, but he could. Um, I love to Jerry. I thought he was, um, absolutely phenomenal talent. And this was a way to get to Jerry on TV. And the first thing that we did with these two is like, we'll put him in there with Regal. And it was the, um, in Vince's mind, it was like the pink Panther, and his trainer, the guy that would always jump in from out of nowhere. And that's what Vince has seen in, in some of this. But the chemistry between Regal and Tajiri was so fucking off the chart that we had to continue it. It was, and that's, and for me, for a producer, um, I loved it. And Brian would write some great shit, but most of the time we would throw it all out the window because. Tajiri wouldn't understand it and just let Tajiri and Regal go. And God, it was funny shit. On July 9th, Taz is going to beat Regal by DQ because Tajiri is going to run in, take off his shirt, reveal an ECW shirt, and then turn on Taz. And he and Regal beat the hell out of Taz. And that sets up the invasion pay-per-view with Raven representing ECW. And he gets a win over William Regal in six minutes and 34 seconds. Meltzer would say that the match didn't get over, only gave it a quarter star. Uh, but after this, Regal and Tajiri are uh, continuing their hijinks. They're things like 
like uh, on the 30th. Really? They bring out a bunch of pies for Vince McMahon, and Tajiri is eating a slice. And Vince explains to Regal that that's not the kind of pie that Rock likes. And about a month later, Tori Wilson is asking Steve Regal and Tajiri to join the commissioner's team. And Regal turns her down, and she starts hitting on them both. Eventually, we get Keebler and Taz beating Tori Wilson and Tajiri. Uh, this is some, some silliness here. Uh, eventually we get, uh, someone charging Steve Regal with sexual harassment. Uh, it's Lance storm. Of course, uh, Regal skits with, uh, Tajiri really turned him from a heel to a baby face in short order. Did they not? They loved it. The, the audience absolutely loved it and we love producing it. it. It was, I think Vince thought it would be. He, he knew it would be entertaining, um, but just didn't know how entertaining it was going to be. And it really took off. I thought that some of that shit and the stuff with Tajiri and Tori Wilson, where he fell in love with her was, I was just classic stuff, man. Good, good, good shit. On the October 8th, raw Regal would turn heel again when he hit Kurt angle with the title belt. And this allowed Austin to beat him and regain the WWF title. And therefore Regal was joining the Alliance as their commissioner. It's sort of late in the game though. A month later for the WCW title, the rock would beat Steven Regal, uh, successful defense there for the rock on November 18th. We finally get Regal squaring off with the Jerry Regal gets the win at that survivor series show, but the next night on raw, and this is a pretty famous angle. Steve Regal has to join the Vince McMahon kiss my ass club to keep his job. After the Alliance was defeated at the survivor series by team WWF Regal has said about it. Vince had to think of a way to keep me on the show and his solution upset a hell of a lot of people. Vince came to me in the afternoon before show and told me the idea. What we're going to do is the kiss my ass club. You're going to have to get on your knees in the middle of the ring and kiss my ass to save your job. It sounded like fun to me, but Vince wasn't sure how real we should make it. What do you think? Should we actually do it? Or should we only tease that we're going to do it? And then I stop you and we hug each other. No, I said, let's do the whole thing. Regal would say there were plenty of reasons why made a lot of sense because he was about to have a hard hitting program with edge and he wanted a reason to be as mad and as aggressive as he could be. and would have to be, he says, there's nothing like being humiliated to make someone mad. And he thought that was the perfect excuse. And he wrote, and I was totally at ease with actually doing it. I can look everyone in the eye and tell them I've never kissed anyone's backside to get a job. I've stayed in work by being good at what I do, being polite and professional. It's the one reason I stayed in work so long when I was heavily into my drugs, because people knew what I had been like before. So he actually kissed Vince's ass. What do you remember about the kiss my ass club? It was Regal's idea. And it was Regal's idea to actually kiss his ass. He thought that it was going to dump a shitload of heat on him, and he was right. In, in addition to that, I'll never forget it because there were people that, oh, no, you can't, you can't kiss his ass. That's crass, all this other shit. But the way Regal did it, how he did it, and him actually doing it was the right thing to do. It is still talked about today. And it was the only thing to do really at that time with that whole story. So it, it dumped a shitload of heat on him. And if you do it right, then 
you can see what 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 happens. And it did dump a shitload of heat on him. And I'll never forget Regal was didn't even remotely get upset. Didn't have that second of hesitation of, uh, well, you know, it was. I love it. And then when Vince came up with the shit, he goes, well, he goes, do we do a swerve where we don't? We actually hug. He's like, no, I should kiss your ass. I should actually kiss your ass. Pull your pants down and I kiss your ass. Because he knew that was for a heel. There's no more heat than that than to kiss the boss's ass. So masterfully done. And I credit I credit Regal for doing it the way it should have been done. Raw on November 26th, we see Regal beat Big Show. Fast forward to Vengeance on December 9th, and Edge would beat Regal to retain the Intercontinental title. End of the new year, we get Regal and Test beating RVD and Edge when Regal pins Edge after hitting him with the brass knuckles. That's around this time he starts to do the power of the punch gimmick where he's going to use brass knuckles to knock his opponents out. Pretty old school idea. Uh, who should we credit with it? Uh... You know, that's going to go back to, to Regal and Fit Finley. Going back to going the, the guy going into his trunks and pulling out a gimmick. But then the thing became, oh, we don't want to do that old school bullshit where it's a bar of soap wrapped up in tape. It was like, let's actually have real brass knuckles and let, let Regal use brass knuckles. So we had a shitload of brass knuckles made, and that's what Regal used night after night. And you can't carry them on the on the plane, since they're illegal, you had to carry them on the trucks and they had to have them each night for him in the gimmick box. Let's box get, of gimmicks. Let's get to the Royal rumble. William Regal is going to beat edge here to win the WWF intercontinental title. And, uh, it's a pretty good match. Uh, two and a quarter stars. Of course, he's using these knuckles, uh, Regal here really having, uh, I don't know, a revitalization in his wrestling career with this feud with edge. Is he not? I mean, he's been sort of doing some funny ha-ha stuff. It's all entertaining stuff, but it's not hard-hitting matches, and that's what he's doing here now. Sure, and it was something that he enjoyed doing, and when you get to do it with a guy like Edge, it was rewarding, plus he's continuing to do his backstage stuff too, which helped him as well. And if you're looking to get a little help in the wrestling business, we've got a tip for you. Tell them all about the new school, Bruce. Well, my brother, Tom Pritchard and Glenn Jacobs of Kane fame are going to be opening up a brand new training facility. It's the Jacobs Pritchard wrestling Academy. It's going to be in Knoxville, Tennessee. And if you go over to, um, uh, you can get all the information. They're going to be having an open house in January, but shoot them over a uh, text or an email and let them know that you're interested because this is a way for you to learn. You learn the right way from the beginning. And uh, if you have been wrestling for a while and you want to get rid of some of those bad habits, I would highly suggest the Jacobs Pritchard Wrestling Academy, not just because it's my brother, but because I think it's uh, going to be one of the best training facilities out there anywhere in the world. So there you go. If you haven't already, go check it out. Uh, let's talk about, uh, RVD. Uh, he's going to beat William Regal in about a minute in a non-title match on January 24th. And a couple of days later, RVD is going to beat him on raw by DQ. Uh, I guess we'll just start hitting some of the uh, major pay-per-views here. 
Uh, William Regal beats edge at the no way out pay-per-view and a brass knuckles on a pole match. And the rules were that you could use brass knuckles, but only the ones that were suspended on this pole. So the referee had to search Regal before the match and he didn't find any knuckles and edge couldn't seem to get the knucks, no matter how close he got to him. What do you remember about this brass knuckles on a pole match? I got two and one quarter star. <laughs> I thought it was actually a pretty damn good match. And it was a clever way for Regal to have a match. And, uh, he ended up with, with knucks that he had hidden in his trunks that the referee didn't find. And it was just a good old school wrestling match and kind of a page out of the, the Tennessee wrestling territory to, to make it a little bit different, but it was good shit. Regal and, and edge had some great matches, man. Well, the great matches keep rolling. WrestleMania 18, March of 02 in Toronto. Uh, we get to RVD taking on William Regal. And, uh, man, this is an intercontinental title match that gets two and a half stars. Meltzer would even say a few moments of miscommunications, but overall, a pretty good opener. And that's hard to argue. Uh, you talk about Styles Clash, though, but these guys managed to pull it off. What'd you think? Well, there's Scott, there's styles clashed, but they clashed in a complimentary way to where Regal made Van Dam shit look good and vice versa. And they enjoyed working with each other because neither guy's shy about, uh, laying one in and throwing some potatoes. So I think that's what made the match so good. Super stiff. If you haven't seen it in a while, you should go watch WrestleMania 18. Uh, let's talk about, uh, March 21st here. Uh, we got William Regal beating DDP to win the European title. Uh, this is, this is fun for me. You know, you take the intercontinental title off of him at WrestleMania on March 17th, just a handful of days later on SmackDown, he wins the European title. Is this just uh, a vote of confidence from Vince that, Hey pal, we're not done with you. He's British. He needs a belt. Wait a minute. We don't have belts. Give him a championship. It just was again, time. And, and it always helped with him to have, have another little prop. March 25th, just a handful of days later, we see the first WWE draft. We've covered this in long form in the archives, which is available at something to wrestle.com. But in this show, Regal is drafted to raw by Ric Flair. Why was Regal a better fit on raw than SmackDown? <laughs> because Brian wanted him on raw. He was fun to write for, and they had good chemistry. So Brian wanted to keep him on raw. We talked about it last week, the flip flopping of the hardcore title, uh, briefly on April 2nd. What do you know? Even Regal gets shot with it. Um, I don't know why that's fun, but it is spike Dudley beat Steven Regal to win the European title on April 8th. Uh, what, how did that happen? Man, spike was getting over spike was on a roll at this point in his career and really had a hell of a following. People were getting into the shit with spike. Why not spike? So it was a nice, it was a nice storyline with regal and dropped the title. It's kind of fun here on April 29th. Regal's doing an interview backstage and he's surrounded by Hulk Hogan merchandise. And the Hogan cartoon is even playing on a TV in the background. And Regal is just appalled. The Hulkamania is running wild in 02. So later in the show, he's going to wrestle Hogan and Regal asks Hogan to drink tea with him before the match. Hogan takes a sip and then spits it into Regal's face. They only go like 30 seconds before the undertaker runs in. 
even if you're not necessarily a huge Hulk Hogan fan, having a segment with Hogan like this, uh, that's every young wrestler's dream in that era. Was it not? Yeah. And go back and watch the facials of William Regal and you can find it on, on YouTube of Regal watching Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling, his, his facials and his reaction to it are some of the best shit you'll ever see. And that, that was the beauty of William Regal. He could sell everything perfectly. I do want to ask, uh, you know, this next segment here is something that, uh, I don't know. It's just weird to me. Insurrection is May 4th and spike beats William Regal to retain the European title. When did the switch sort of flip? Like at SummerSlam 92, Davy boy gets the big crowning. It's a big blow off at the end of the night. What a celebration, but it feels like with, you know, by the time you get to 97, Sean beats the bulldog for the European title, tons of heat. And now you've got another British wrestler. This is the second time we've had a British paper either Regal's been on and he loses both times. Is that by design? Did Vince just love the British heat? Check me up. He's a heel. Well, fuck, he's a heel, and why not beat him in in his home country? Okay, thanks for uh, participating. Well, no, today. I mean it, it. It's it's like, well, why why do you beat him in Kansas City? It, it's well, I'm just saying. Two fucking days later on Raw, Regal beat Spike to win the European title for the fourth time. Well, why would you do it two days prior at the goddamn pay per view? More eyeballs on Raw. Well, then why have the pay per views? There's less eyeballs there. Well, no, there's eyeballs, but then people are paying for that and you give them a good show. Why wouldn't you fucking give them a title change that they're paying for? I feel like I'm talking about paying for, they're not paying for a title change. They're paying for a good show. And if you're paying for a title change, then you're, you're paying for the wrong damn things. Oh, okay. So if there is a title change, it's not a good show. I understand. That's not what I said. No, that is what you said. You said they're not paying for a title change. If you're paying for a title change then you're paying for the wrong things. You should be paying for the show itself. If you get a title change, then is there no, is there no school of thought? When did it leave the WWE's just normal course of business to send them home happy? That's what I don't understand. Well, you can't always send them home happy. And frankly, when you're doing a monthly pay-per-view is, is also kind of when it changed because you have to adopt the old school live event strategy where most of the times in wrestling territories, you left with heat. The baby face would win, you know, once every six to eight weeks. And the baby face had to fight from underneath all those times. When Vince went national with Hulk Hogan, it was always leave him happy, leave him up, leave him, leave him happy no matter what. And that changed when we went to the monthly pay-per-views and the philosophy has changed, I think, even more so now with the network. And they're trying to get heat. They're trying to get people not as satisfied with those big shows. So they'll come back to see their hero or whatever in a return, get it later on down the road. All righty. Uh, we start to see, um, on May 27th, Trish and spike beat Regal and Molly. And after that, we see Regal and Molly have some sort of strange relationship. How would you categorize that? Um, sexually frustrated platonic. Well, what was not sexually frustrated on the June 22nd episode of confidential 
is one of the members of uh, William Regal's reptile collection. This is real. He shared a story on the show where his, uh, his iguana humped his wife's head during breeding season. <laughs> you ever have any reptiles try to hump your head? Well, of the iguana, uh, species, I was hoping you had a Jake, the snake story. I'm sorry. I had no, I, I've never, I've never had, I've never had a reptile hump my head. I've had a, uh, I have had Jake's, uh, try to ejaculate my arm. I'm sorry. Excited. I'm going to need you to run me by or run that by me again. One of Jake's snakes tried to ejaculate my arm. Ejaculate your arm. What, what is yeah, that? It, what? Was a, it was the left one. Massive. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't, I, I don't even think you're using the words, right? Okay. I'm sorry. Ejaculate your arm. Your well, arm I tried. It was wrong. You can't ejaculate an arm, but the snake was confused. Okay. All right. If you know what the fuck he's talking about, send us a tweet. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't speak Bruce for the first time ever. Uh, let's talk about July 8th. Jeff Hardy gets a win over William Regal for the European title. And after the match coach goes to interview Regal about his loss and Regal breaks down and starts weeping. And, uh, Chris Nowinski appears and starts to console him. What's the, what's the thinking here? Just to give another dimension of, of William Regal. And I think that with that character, you never know what the hell to expect. And the fact that he lost, you know, this European championship to Jeff Hardy, he had just lost his wits. Didn't have his wits about him. On September 9th, he joins the un-Americans when he runs down and hits Kane with brass knuckles. And that allows Christian and storm to retain the tag team titles. Why was Regal a good fit for the un-Americans? Well, Regal was the only one in the Un-Americans who was not afraid of heat. And you had a group of, of William Regal, Lance Storm, Christian, and Test that were going to denounce America and call themselves the Un-Americans and, and talk about how great it was to not be American coming from Canada and coming from England. But no one, with the exception of Regal, was willing to embrace the gimmick and I would, I'd say the rest of those guys were, were afraid of the heat and Regal really wanted to do it, but it was extremely short lived because after watering it down, nobody gave a shit. The unforgiven pay-per-view we had Booker T and Goldust and Bubba Ray Dudley teaming with Kane to take on the evil Canadians and William Regal. Uh, Meltzer would say it was good. It was a good opener and it got three and a quarter stars. On the September 30th edition of raw, we would see every member of the un-Americans lose their matches, causing the group to separate later in the night and break away into separate groups where Regal would start teaming with Lance storm. Why'd you guys split the group up here? Because nobody wanted to do it. They, they were on, they were uncomfortable with the heat. All the guys lived in Florida, I believe at the time, with the exception of Regal. And they were like, man, we've got to cross the border. We've got to live here and we've got families and we don't want to be un-American. We love America. And it's like, it's a work. It's a gimmick. But they were uncomfortable with it. So we ended it. Here's a pretty notable match. October 10th, there's a Las Vegas showgirls match where Regal's going to beat Goldust. And Regal has said that a lot of people thought that 
he would hate this and he would be horrified, humiliated by it. But in reality, it could have been further from the truth. He had a blast doing it. And he threw in some old comedy bits that he had grown up on. And a lot of the guys even couldn't believe that he didn't have a problem with this. What'd you think of the Las Vegas girls show match where he beat Goldust? I thought it was excellent. And again, it's another example of Regal embracing the shit that he's given. And it's like, some guys, oh, I don't want to dress up in a dress and you have to go out and wear lipstick and all this other shit. Regal took it the other way. He took it as I get an opportunity to go out and dress up in a dress and put makeup on and be over the top and perform and have a performance that people will never forget. And that is the attitude that you want with an entertainer. He's working mostly house shows for the rest of O2, teaming with Lance Storm, usually against Hurricane and Spike Dudley, or maybe the Dudley Boys. At the Armageddon pay-per-view on December 15th, Booker T and Goldust win the tag titles by beating the former champs Christian and Jericho, the Dudley Boys, and Regal and Lance Storm. On the 500th Raw, about a month or a week later, on December 23rd, they're in Oklahoma, so you know what that means. JR's in the ring, and this time tagging with Jerry Lawler, and they're going to get a win over Regal and Storm. And this happens when JR gets Regal's knucks, hits him with him, and pins him. Uh, this is a change Wait of a pace. Minute. Wait a minute. We're in Oklahoma. And JR won. And JR goes over? I know. It's like as long as Regal gets the loss, everybody's okay, right? What kind of bullshit is that? I know. You gotta, I mean, you got to build the live show business, pal. You're not, you're not here to send them home happy. This is why the business Fuck must up. have suffered. No three. You guys were trying right. to make people JR happy. Yeah. Uh, on the January 1st raw in 2003, Regal and storm beat Booker and Goldust for the tag titles. And chief Morley was the ref. Let's fast forward to uh, the Royal rumble. The Dudleys are going to beat Regal and storm to win the tag titles. And the very next night Regal and storm win them back in like 19 seconds. What the fuck is the point of the tag change at, or the title change at the rumble? God damn it. Anything can happen. Any, any night, every night championships on the line. They can change hands at any time. You never know. Uh, I guess we should mention that no way out 2003 where Regal and storm beat RVD and Kane to retain. That's actually Regal's last match for over a year. Uh, a few weeks prior to that match, he got sick during a tour and a lot of the other guys did too, but the afternoon of that pay-per-view, he started swelling up like his abdomen, his legs, his ankles. And when the match started, the first time he got in the ring was with Kane and he picked him up and slammed him. And he remembers going up for the slam. And the next thing he remembers was lying on the canvas, oblivious to everything going on around him. He wrote, I felt so calm and peaceful. The thought even passed through my mind. I wish I could rest like this at night. Suddenly Kane and referee Nick Patrick were leaning over him asking if he was all right. And it was only then I realized I'd been knocked out by Kane's slam. I felt like I'd been lying peacefully there for hours. How long have I been out? I wanted to know. We carried on and got through the match. Okay. But afterwards I noticed I was swelling up worse than ever. The concussion meant I wasn't allowed to wrestle the next day. So I went to the ring with Lance while he had a match, but I was still swelling up. My stomach and legs were enormous. I got home on Tuesday and two days later, I weighed 265 pounds. He went to the nearest hospital, waited for five hours for them to run tests. Eventually they tell him he's got to see the gastro doc. And he says they never put a heart monitor on me. And if they would have, they would have found out what was wrong. 
After several more tests, it was discovered that he had congestive heart failure. His heart had gotten larger and was beating at over a hundred beats a minute. His heart had gone into some sort of abnormal arrhythmia, which caused the problems. And they had to stick a camera inside of his hip to check everything out. And while he's in the hospital, he says that a nurse told him whatever you were planning on doing for the rest of your life, just forget it. Everything starts or stops. Now what you've got, people have heart transplants for, and that's what you're going to have to do too. Man, you talk about if it wasn't for luck or wasn't for bad luck. He'd have no luck at all. Talk to me about this health scare here. Well, it was, I believe it was right after, uh, a tour to India. We got back to the pay-per-view. I don't remember if it's the pay-per-view or the raw right afterwards, but I remember Booker T was sick as a dog and we sent Booker to the hospital. He was in a bad way. And then Booker went home right after that. And Regal was like, yeah, I'm not feeling really well, but it's, you know, it's a trip. We just did this long tour and I'm just, it's the effects of the trip. And then all this shit happened with him. So it was a pretty damn scary time. And they chalk it up to him getting some kind of parasite while he was in India that got into his system, infected his heart. And it was some pretty fucking scary shit because at this point, you know, early on, all we knew was something was wrong. And until they found out, you know, that it was actually his heart and they could do something about it, you know, that unknown is a scary deal. And, you know, it's, it's nut cutting time. What do you do now? And everybody, the doctors love to tell you, you know, your career, your life, as you know, it's over. I think the doctors get off on telling people that. While he's in there, he, he has all these alarms start going off and the doctors and nurses come running in and they tell him his heart's beating 108 beats a minute. And they tell him they're going to have to do a procedure the next day to stop his heart and restart it. And they told him, uh, you know, that this is something where they're going to have to give him anesthesia to put him to sleep. And as soon as his heart restarts, he'll wake up. And he said, the next thing he remembered was sitting in bed screaming. And then he fell back and fell asleep again. He woke up and didn't know how long he was out for, but the doctor told him he could go home. His heart was beating fine, but all the doctors told him it was over. He went to the doctor later about it. And the doctor said he couldn't give him any answers while someone his age had that issue. And when he told him about his past drug use, the doctor said that may have been an underlying cause of it. Uh, what say you, do you think that maybe some of the drug use is what caused this? Well, I definitely think that it might've had something to do with the deterioration of his heart, but, um, I think that for the most part, people, people chalked it up to the combination of that and whatever the hell he might've gotten in India and just a chain effect that, that took place. So yeah, I think the drugs would definitely play some sort of part in all that shit. I guess we should mention here that, uh, Johnny Ace eventually calls and invites him to come back to be a road agent. And he agrees to do it, but he only lasts about six weeks because he says he came back too soon. He winds up going to England for a bit. And when he comes back to a doctor, 
and tells him he's doing 500 squats and 200 pushups and feels fine. The doctor still told him because of insurance reasons, he couldn't clear him to wrestle. Were you guys aware of that, that he felt like he was good to go, but for whatever reason, the doctors wouldn't clear him. Yes. And again, I think that any athlete, anybody that, that is in that field, they're always going to tell you, no, I'm ready to go. I'm good. I'm, 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 I'm good before they are. So you, that's why you have to, well, I don't always agree with the doctors. You, you, you have to have that third party and you have to have somebody on the medical side say, yes, we can clear them or no, we can't because unless you can watch them for 15 days or, or a month or whatever, do all of this shit and there's no repercussions, it's, it's hard to do. So you got to take the doctor's word for it. Yeah. Regal did feel that he was ready to go back. I guess we should mention that, um, he's voicing his frustrations and eventually they send him to a cardiologist in Birmingham and he goes and sees the doctor and the doctor told him they'd take him off all the meds he was on. And if he was okay, after a month, he cleared him to wrestle. And that's what happened. So he wound up being out for 15 months. Uh, and then he got a call from the office saying they wanted to put him in a manager's role with a new character named Eugene. Chat me up. Why was Eugene the right way to bring him back? Well, because he was ready to come back and he, he had been cleared. So what do you do with him? Uh, being able to utilize him and the, just the thought of being able to do something with, with Regal and Bischoff and Nick Dinsmore, who portrayed Eugene, it was from a writer's standpoint, an opportunity to come up with some good creative shit and Regal provided a shitload of entertainment during that whole thing. And, and he was, he was the right guy for Eugene. I thought that they did some entertaining stuff. Eugene, of course, was played by Nick Dinsmore in storyline. He's Eric Bischoff's nephew. I'm sure we'll talk about him some more another time. Uh, evolution is picking on Eugene and Regal sticks up for him, which causes this match. And it also turns him babyface in the process and puts Regal and Eugene together. And Regal comes out and cuts a fiery promo on triple H and, uh, it's pretty good stuff. Uh, that leads to, of course, the match with triple H and during the match, triple H hits him with a sledgehammer. Regal does a stretcher job and triple H even tips it over as they're taking him out. So he's been gone for over a year. And when he comes back, you guys beat the shit out of him and put him on stretcher. Goddamn right. No. Well, no, Triple H beat the shit out of him. Sure. So I, know, so I know you loved it. Damn right. Every bit of it. Chuck Palumbo and Stevie Richards are working with him on house shows after this. Uh, he does get a win over Ric Flair on August 23rd. Batista beats him the next week, though, just continuing this um, evolution feud. On the house shows in uh, August, September, and October, he's tagging with Eugene against La Resistance for the tag titles. And on October 25th, Snitsky beats him in like 26 seconds. So that's where he is at this point. He's working with heat or on heat and getting a win over a guy with heat. Ken Anderson, uh, a couple of weeks later, he's teaming with, uh, Eugene and wins the tag titles on November 15th when he beat La, La resistance and Tajiri and Rhino in a triple threat match. Is this a big moment for him? You know, he's, um, 
it's his first real title win since he's been back after the long injury and after being told that, Hey, you'll never wrestle again. Even if it's the tag titles with Eugene, it's gotta be like fucking a, I did it. Right. I just think he was happy at this point to be back and being able to do what he loved to do and being able to do what the doctors told him. You're never going to be able to do again and shove it up their ass and do it. And on some level, even though they, they flip flop titles a lot for the company to put it on you, knowing that 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 was in your not so distant past where you had this major heart issue. It's a vote of confidence that, Hey, we're glad you're back and we believe in you. Yep. And happy about it. Uh, they stick with uh, La resistance on the house show loop through November and December. And then they close out of four working some with Christian and Tyson Tomko There's a name. I don't know what we'll talk about again. Uh, on a house show, January 16th, 2005, La Resistance gets a win over Regal and Coach, who is subbing for Eugene. This sounds fucking weird all the way around, does it not? No, not really. It's just you got, you know, Eugene not able to make the show, and Coach was a nice little replacement there. It's a special for the house show. Just a house show. Damn. They continue working with La Resistance through February and March. And, uh, here's a little bit of a hodgepodge match here on March 21st. Regal to Jerry and Christy Hemi beat Maven, Molly Holly and Simon Dean. And that gets us to uh, backlash before you know it. It's May 1st on 2005 Regal and Tajiri lose the titles to Rosie and hurricane in a gauntlet match, which also includes Maven and Simon, the heartthrobs and La Resistance. Pretty good little run here for Regal and Tajiri. Overall, is that your favorite pairing of Regals in the WWE? Yeah, I think so. I, it was the most entertaining by far. June 23rd, he sent to SmackDown as a part of an 11 person trade. And, um, he's been back for a, a bit at this point. Are people saying this is the William Regal of old, or can you tell that he's lost a step? I think it was the William Regal. <sighs> Well, I hate to say of old because I, I still think there was always a little bit of hesitation and there was always that um, maybe a half of a step off that some people wouldn't see. But I, I don't think that the audience at home is looking at it and saying, oh, that's not the old Stephen Regal. I think the people are looking at it and going, hey, there's William Regal and he looks just as good as he always did. Uh, he starts working with Bobby Lashley through uh, house shows in, like late July and August. And then randomly, or it feels like to me, he's teaming with Paul Burchill. Uh, why were they put together? And what's your favorite Paul Burchill match? Well, they're put together because they're both damn Englishmen. <laughs> I knew <laughs> you were going to say do. That. My God. That's what you do. And my favorite, uh, Burchill moment. Let's do my favorite Burchill moment was. SmackDown, when we were introducing the network executive from UPN, and we had the pirate come swinging down from the rafters through the set into a group of little people, one who was eating a ham, and dancing. And I'll never forget, uh, there's Paul Burchill with the makeup and all this shit, and all of these little people gathered all around us and the network executive and 
Vince and I are watching the monitor and he looks at me and he says, God damn it, pal. Yeah. You think it's uh, maybe a little bit too much haha with the pirate? And I'm just looking at all these little people all around and fucking the pirate standing there going, Arr! And just thinking how surreal that moment was at that point in time. Yeah, it might have been a little too much haha, Vince. I think it was the pirate, though. Yeah, sure, it was the pirate. Not the guy eating the ham, not the little fellows dancing, but the pirate. Poor Paul Burchill. I start working house shows against the Legion of Doom, which at this point are Animal and Heidenreich. There's an Eddie Guerrero tribute show on raw November 13th, 2005. Ric Flair would beat Regal there. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about that raw sometime soon. I should also mention the Armageddon pay-per-view Lashley would beat Regal and virtual in a handicap match on December 18th. Was, was Regal ever one to complain about, you know, his assignments on the show or was he always just happy to be on the show? For the most part, he was always happy to be on the show. However, I think that he would express whether or not he thought something could have been done better or, but he was, Regal wasn't a bitcher. He wasn't somebody that constantly complained. He would, first thing he would do is come to you with a suggestion as a way to make it better in his eyes. On the February 3rd episode of SmackDown, Regal and Virtual told the network representative Palmer Cannon that they no longer wanted to be a tag team so they could go their separate ways. Chat me up here. Talk to me about Palmer Cannon. <laughs> Palmer was somebody from, I believe he came out of Deep South Wrestling, the developmental territory that we had outside of Atlanta. And just didn't last long. He, he wasn't made for the business. He, the boys ribbed him and he didn't know how to take it. Wasn't a good worker. So we, we were trying to get him on the road so that he could work with guys. And it just, it was, it just wasn't a match. Didn't work. It was, he was in the wrong profession. This uh, leads to a match where uh, Birchall wants to be a pirate and he's going to start a rivalry with Regal, who's going to try to convince Birchall to return to their old team. But Regal loses to Birchall in the first match where he's a pirate. And uh, there's a stipulation where if Regal lost, he had to dress like a buxom winch. And Lady Regal is the way they would refer to him here. Boy, he's a loyal soldier. He'll do whatever. It's his idea. I'm just saying, uh, April 2nd for the U S title, uh, in London, JBL would beat Regal. Of course there in England, Regal's got to lose U S title in England. Well, he lost the European title over there too. Damn right. And every other time he wrestled in England. That's not true. Okay. Uh, through Regal, uh, or through June, Regal's going to be putting over the new United States champion, Bobby Lashley, and occasionally even big veto on house shows. And around this time, Booker T becomes the king of the ring and Regal joins his court playing something of a town crier. Uh, what's your memories of this? And, and why was Regal perfect for Booker T's angle here? Because the English have Kings, they have royalty. So it's logical for the Royal King to have an English crier. Hear ye, hear ye. And then what, what came of that? was 
again, another one which we'll do one day. Um, the Booker T, Queen Charmel shit and the, the King Booker stuff was some of the most fun I've ever had producing because we would just, we would get to the buildings and laugh and produce that stuff. But Regal in the very beginning was to try and help Booker get over a little more. Great American bash fit. Finley would beat him defending the U S title, uh, over at no mercy. William Regal would beat him. And after the match, Booker called him useless, slapped him. And that resulted in Regal punching him and leaving the group. And 12 days later at no mercy, he stated that while he had once been one of the world's greatest wrestlers, he'd since become a doormat. And he referred to uh, being dressed as a buxom winch for a pirate, the locker room incident with Vito being knighted by a false King, all these different examples. And, uh, he introduces his new tag team partner, Dave Taylor, who we talked about before. And although they, uh, reformed their previous tag team, they did not reuse the blue bloods gimmick. Instead, they portrayed themselves as these badass sadistic fighters and they're quickly put into jeopardy because Taylor almost immediately tears his, uh, his meniscus in his left knee. So he does a little more relaxed role for a little bit. And, uh, I guess we'll fast forward here. December 16th. We see Armageddon. They're teaming to, uh, challenge for the tag titles in a ladder match. That match also has basically everyone else, London and Kendrick, Eminem, the Hardys. And London and Kendrick win the match. And this is the match that most people remember for Joey Mercury's brutal injury. What are your memories of the match and the, this pretty incredible injury? Well, for me, it was all about the injury because I saw it happen and thought, oh, wow, that was a stiff shot. And I was at gorilla position. So I was able to have one camera zoom in on Joey Mercury's face. And at that point it was like, get him out of there because you could tell half of his face looked like it was gone. And Joey didn't want to leave. Joey didn't want to leave the match. He had taken a ladder shot straight to the face. He had shattered his orbital and his nose. And it was a horrible slash across his face. We got him to the back, had paramedics there and and our doctor and they wrapped him up easily but the, the one thing I remember more than anything was not wanting to unwrap Joey's eye because no one was sure if his eye was there or not. And that was an absolutely terrifying feeling. On top of that, the paramedics wouldn't leave to take him to the hospital because of a rule that the ambulance can't leave if, unless there's one there to replace it. Now, there was an ambulance en route to replace it that was a block away, but yet they stayed and they sat there for another 10 or 15 minutes before they would leave to go take Joey to go get his his eye fixed. That drove me nuts. That's one time that, I mean, holy shit, Stephanie McMahon went absolutely berserk on the, the whole EMT crew and everybody around. It was not a pretty sight. But that was a scary, scary night. That's all I remember really about that match. I wanted to ask you this. In my research, I found between March 10th and the 12th, Regal and Taylor tagging up to uh, take on Henry Godwin and Cousin Ray on a handful of house shows. Uh, This is a very brief return here for Henry Godwin in 2007. But Cousin Ray, who was that? 
I think that was Ray Gordy. How about that? Uh, Terry Gordy's son, who was later, I forget what the hell, when we brought him in with Festus. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a great idea, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. So throughout March and April, uh, Regal and Taylor are teaming up on all the house shows against Deuce and Domino, Jimmy Wayne Yang and Nunzio, Kendrick and London. Uh, is it safe to say that you guys didn't really have a lot for Regal at this point creatively? Well, well, no. And part of it also at the same time was Regal really wanted to do this team with Dave Taylor. And I right. think it was, uh, Regal giving back to Dave. He wanted to be in that tag team with Dave and he wanted to give back and Vince and everybody else honored that because Regal had been, you know, a stalwart guy and we tried it out. He, uh, drops a couple of matches to boogeyman and Kane and may and throughout most of uh, may and June, they're losing to the Daltons. Festus and Jesse on house shows, uh, June 17th, we see Regal finally get drafted back to raw. And I think most people remember, uh, towards the end of the month there, we see the Benoit tragedy unfold. And during the raw tribute to Chris Regal is the only guy I didn't really say anything about Chris as a person. He only talked to talked about him as a wrestler and a lot of fans picked up on this and People have speculated years since that maybe Regal was suspect before a lot of others. Do you ever have a conversation with Regal about that? No, and, and that's just stupid. You know, I, I hate when people judge other people on how they react to tragedy because right. you never know how you're going to react in, in a tragedy. We, we had been given limited news about this horrible, horrible tragedy, and it's about your friends, your coworkers. And you're asked if you want to do something it was voluntary, if they wanted to do it and, and they do something from the heart, but they're not thinking clearly and everybody reacts to tragic issues in different ways. And, and that's just such bullshit for anybody to, to bring that up. I just think it's, I, I just fuck you. I, I, I just, I hate that. I'm sorry. On July 2nd, Regal's going to serve as the interim GN of Raw, filling in for Jonathan Coachman. And uh, while he's there, he's going to introduce the Beat the Clock match, which was used to determine who would challenge John Cena for the championship at Great American Bash. A week later, he gets a win over Sandman. And when we fast forward to early August, Regal becomes the new general manager by winning a battle royal. Is this more of, hey, that worked before, let's do that again? Exactly. He was entertaining there. Let's put him back in that role. Believe it or not, he's working house shows with Jim Duggan after this. That's a real sentence. Uh, he even gets some house show matches with Johnny Jeter. And on New Year's Eve, Triple H is supposed to wrestle Ric Flair, which is Flair's win or retire stipulation. It's still active here. And Regal announces if Triple H loses the match in any way, he would not he would not participate in the Royal Rumble match. And he's scheduled that night to wrestle Hornswoggle with Mr. McMahon at ringside. And McMahon tossed Regal some nucks during the match and encouraged him to use them on Hornswoggle, but he didn't, and he left the ring. So during the Flair Triple H match, Triple H is about to pin Flair for the win when all of a sudden Regal appears and punches Flair in the face with the brass knuckles. This gives Flair the win by DQ ensuring that he could continue to wrestle and that triple H would not be a part of the Royal rumble. Pretty creative writing here. Who can we uh, credit for that idea? Oh, uh, well, much I hate to credit him. Uh, that'd probably be that old Brian Gewertz. 
That's good stuff, man. It was, it was entertaining and it was good storyline. A lot of different shit that you can't call happening. The next night on raw, of course, uh, Regal was squashed by triple H in a first blood match because, well, you know, uh, on January 14th with flair's career on the line, flair gets a win over William Regal and he's working house shows at this point against some names. You might recognize Cody Rhodes, fit Finley, DH Smith, super crazy. And Paul London on the April 21st raw, they did a one night King of the ring tournament. And it was uh, a famous pay-per-view for years and years. Now it's on raw. Uh, Regal is going to beat Finley by submission in round one in the quarterfinals. This is real. He beat Hornswoggle by submission. And then in the finals, he beat CM Punk by submission to win the King of the ring. This seems sort of out of nowhere. Regal's the King of the ring. How does this come to be? He's British. He's got to be King of the ring. Oh my God. <laughs> Unless it was of in course. England and then beat his ass. Well, though, yes. Yeah. When we turned to England, we'd beat his ass for the King of the Ring. Put the crown on the line. On the May 19th Raw from the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Regal is doing a coronation for himself being King of the Ring. And, of course, Kennedy comes out and wants a match tonight. Eventually, Vince comes out, and he gave Regal his 100% endorsement. And uh, I don't know. This is fun. It feels like... Vince really enjoyed being on camera with Regal. Would that be fair to say? He did because again, it was somebody that he could ad lib with and banter back and forth. That was believable and entertaining. So the storyline here is viewer dissatisfaction abounds. And every time your face appears on this television channel, um, viewers just leave minute by minute. So we've got to get you out of here. So tonight. Regal versus Kennedy is a loser gets fired match. Of course, Kennedy pins Regal in the match. So he just won King of the Ring and now he's fired. Now, behind the scenes, it looks like he failed the drug test and was suspended for 60 days. It felt like this part of his life was put to bed when it pops up again here. What's Vince and the rest of the office's reaction? Well, it was one of those drug tests. It was something that was over the counter that was on the banned list that came back. And I don't know if this was Dr. Black days or who it was, but it was, there would be times when guys would go and get supplements and different things. And, and there would be an ingredient in the supplement that's on the banned list and it would show up on the test. So that's what this one was. It wasn't something for you know, uh, new Bane or any, anything like that. It was one of the ingredients in something that he didn't realize he was taking. Is the timing of this shit. Could it be any worse? You know, he's about ah. to get when he's first getting signed with WWE, he falls asleep in the meeting, you know, he's suffering from this really bad pneumonia. Once he's got another good push and he's really settled in and turned his life around the whole parasite thing sidetracks him. He's out for 15 months. Now, after not doing shit with him forever, he wins the king of the ring. And then immediately, bam, this pops up worst timing ever. You could write a book. Oh, wait, he did, but, you, but seriously, you could write a book on just all the horrible turns that have come throughout his career gets going, gets going. And then boom, another stumbling block, but it also speaks to the perseverance and the human being that he is to overcome the adversity. Well, let's keep going. Believe it or not, we're almost at the end here of your run. Uh, when he returns on July 28th, he's defeated by world champion CM Punk. 
starts working house shows with Jamie Noble. On November 3rd, he wins a battle royal to get a shot at the Intercontinental title. And the following week, I can't believe it, in England, he beats Santino Morello in 31 seconds to win his second Intercontinental title. I can't believe it. Wait a minute, we were in England and he won? He won. What the hell? Uh, Survivor Series. Survivor Series 2080 teams with Randy Orton, Cody Rhodes, Mark Henry, and Shelton Benjamin against Batista, CM Punk, Kofi Kingston, Matt Hardy, and R-Truth. And he's pinned 11 seconds into the match by CM Punk. Uh, but as fast as he's out of there, you were out of there first. You're, you're out of the company. Uh, he winds up losing the Intercontinental Championship to CM Punk on the January 19th Raw. You know, we never really talked about this, but did you keep in touch with Regal once you were... Persona non grata? Yes, I did. And uh, Regal was was one of the guys that I did keep in touch with and um, always been always been very friendly and always been a good guy, but he would call and check on me and just call to say hello. He would usually call on my birthday to wish me a happy birthday, but he would just call out of the blue to say hello and make sure I was doing all right. So, um, yeah, we still keep in touch from time to time. Now it's maybe once a year. Hello, Darren, how you doing? And check up on each other when we hear things about one another. In the years since you've left, he's gotten heavily involved with uh, Florida championship wrestling. And then of course now NXT, and he's been the GM of NXT since 2014. Have you had a chance to keep up with any of his NXT work? And what do you think? I have. And I think that it's the right role for him. I think sometimes uh, they they play it a little too straight. I think that his strength his strengths are more to the comedic and entertainment. But at the same time, I enjoy him because I like Darren. So, um, I think they're they're using him and utilizing him to the best of his abilities. Behind the scenes, I think most of us uh, quote unquote smart marks who listen to a show like this uh, know that he has been pretty crucial to bringing in new talent. And in February of 2018, WWE.com started to refer to him as the WWE director of talent development and the head of global recruiting. Is there a better guy for spotting an offer or having an offer talent than William Regal? I think he has a great eye for talent. And I'll go back to, uh, a gentleman by the name of Daniel Bryan, who I brought in from Sean's school in San Antonio, him and Spanky and Lance Cade. Everybody thought at the time that Lance Cade's going to be the big star. He had the size, he had the look and everything. At the same time when Regal was rehabbing and getting his ring legs about him, he was working in Memphis. It was at the same time that Daniel Bryan and those guys were there as well. And I remember Regal saying to me that Bryan Danielson will be a huge star. You just have to find the right thing for him. It was Regal is the one that put him under the mask. He sent him overseas and got him booked in uh, England. He got him booked in Germany, got him booked in Japan, all over the place, and constantly would tell us about how great Brian Danielson was doing. So if it wasn't for Regal constantly bringing Daniel Bryan, as we know him now, bringing him back up. I don't know that eh, maybe, you know, cream rises to the top. His talent would have gotten him there, but, but Regal helped out tremendously in Daniel Bryan's career and saw it before anybody else did. 
maybe Sean saw it early on. Um, but Regal was a champion and a cheerleader for Daniel Bryan from the minute he laid eyes on him. Great, great talent scout. What do you think his legacy in the business will be? You know, it's, it's going to be, in, in my opinion, I think it's just going to be him as an overall worker and entertainer. Uh, but I, all, but I think that the things that he has done behind the scenes, like the talent scout, like going out and discovering and working with young talent to me, that's the most valuable and that's where he is best. In my opinion, where do you think he ranks on the list of like all time general managers that WWE's had over the years? <laughs> well, definitely top five. He he's up there because he's memorable and the stuff that he that he did during that time with with Tajiri and Tori, it was really memorable, entertaining things that to this day people still call back to. What's your favorite William Regal match? Wow. Um I think probably the one with Benoit, which brought him back into the fold and got everybody to see that he was in shape and ready to go. That's the Pillman Memorial Show. Yes. Yep. Uh, by the way, there's a match in Uncensored in WCW that Tony Schiavone calls his favorite match ever, and it was Fit Finley and William Regal. And they Is just that beat the parking the shit. lot brawl? No. They were in the ring, and they just beat the shit out of each other. Yeah. And I think a lot of people probably still talk about his match with Goldberg that got a lot of people buzzing. Do you know, I've never seen that match. He should go out of your way to see it. I've heard about it, but I've never seen it as somebody who knows what to look for. You should go watch it. Um, do you think, uh, Regal belongs in the hall of fame? When do you think he goes in? It'll be a few years before he goes in, but I do think that he's deserving to go in. Let's do some questions here. Some rapid fire questions. And if you've got questions for next week's episode, we would encourage you to Find us on social media at Pritchard show on Instagram at Pritchard show on Twitter. Of course, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And, uh, the rumor and innuendo is that we've got a couple of fun shows coming your way, man. Are you looking forward to next week? I sure as hell am. It's Christian time. I'm looking forward to it, man. I know. Wait, you know what? Oh, you... wait, it isn't. It's survivor series next survivor series, 1998. You rat bastard. I screwed That's up. That's what Sorry. we're doing. Yeah. And then, uh, on Thanksgiving night, we're going to have survivor series, 1988. That'll actually be a watch along and it'll be a day early Christian though. is still coming your way on November 30th. I guess you're just really excited to talk about Christian. I really and truly am. I've already started my, my notes and, uh, just kind of going back, but next week though, man, it's going to be, uh, maybe Vince Russo's best one show story ever go watch it this week. Survivor series, 1998. And while you're doing that, maybe boost that total testosterone with ageless male max. They've got a formula that's going to help you promote greater increases in muscle size and twice the reduction in body fat percentage than just exercise alone. Plus an amazing 64% in nitric oxide. Try your first 30 day bottle for free. Just pay your shipping and handling. When you text the word slam to 797979. For your free bottle, just text SLAM to 797979. And remember, your message and data rates may apply. Bruce, let's get to some questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, Colton wants to know, how big was Sir William Regal's part in getting a lot of the newer WWE superstars to sign with WWE? Well, actually, it, it was big. And 
you know, he was also one of those guys that when I would go out to different places, uh, California, and I would go to scout talent, I would bring him as a WWE star to work on those cards. And he would always sit there and watch and I valued his opinion tremendously. And later on, he's now their guy. They send out to evaluate talent. He knows what he's doing. Jim wants to know, did he go by Steven or William backstage? Usually, well, I mean, he got, he got the whole gambit. He got Steven, he got William and he got Darren. Andrew, so it, everybody. Andrew wants to know, was there ever a time Regal was seriously considered for WWE champion? No, not necessarily, but he was, he was a great intercontinental champion and somebody that fit that level. Brian would write, is it safe to say that Regal is one of the stiffest yet safest workers in the business's history? Never really heard anything about him hurting anybody, yet his stuff always looked very stiff. Do you remember any stories about guys who were injured with his style? Because I don't. Yeah, he wasn't stiff. He was snug. He was tight. There's a big difference. Stiff people hurt people. And Regal was snug and kept it tight, but he didn't hurt people. Michael Bradley wants to know if Bruce can sing Regal's Man's Man theme, please. Just one chorus or one verse will suffice. He's a man, he's a man's man. That's all I know. I don't know the rest of the words. Mikey writes, being able to swing back and forth believably from comedy and serious business is incredibly hard to do. And Regal did this perfectly. Who else would you say is the best at both serious and comedy? I only have uh, one, but me personally, Conrad, I have one name. I wonder if we land on the same one. Vince McMahon. Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle's another great one. Yeah. And maybe Vince is maybe, able to do it too. Maybe for that matter, Steve Austin. Yes. All good. Yeah. All great examples because they could, they're believable in whatever role you put them in. Uh, Nick writes, has William Regal ever been in a backstage fight that you know of? He seems like the kind of guy you don't want to mess with. No, he, he hasn't because he is the kind of guy you don't want to mess with. Uh, Allie wants to know, was there ever any talk of trying to put Davy boy and Regal together? Yeah, boy. I don't know if Davy was with us during Regal's really intense run, but, uh, no, there was not. Tony wants to know, ultimately, will you remember Regal for his wrestling or his time as GM? For me, the best time that I had with him was during his GM roles. Uh, Ricardo wants to know what's Regal like away from the camera. I've always heard he has a really dry, witty sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, he does. He's, he's, he's funny as shit, but it's that, it's that English humor. And I'll never forget the time that there was Regal and, uh, the gentleman Lemmy from motorhead. They were in a limousine and they were, they were talking and a friend of mine by the name of John Paul Shellnut, who is kind of difficult to understand sometimes because so shellnut came in and sat in the limo and started talking to uh regal and lemmy and he had met lemmy before and so on and so forth and had this whole conversation and shellnut walks out of the limousine and lemmy who could be hard to understand looks at regal and says mate did you understand the fucking word that guy just said and they got a good laugh out of that but they laughed about it for like a month it felt like every time regal would see me he would tell me the same story and just laugh his ass off but yeah very dry very british humor 
Uh, Justin wants to know, can Bruce give several example of what a real man's man would do in various situations? You squeeze your own goddamn juice. I'm glad you mentioned that because Mike wants to know, were those shoot oranges or working oranges? They were working oranges from oranges are us working and shit. Juicy. Actually, it was juicy oranges are us. I was told that, uh, Burnham Schnavitz was your, your contact there at working oranges. Uh, at your pace. Uh, Martin Adams wants to know if you have any funny or interesting stories of William Regal. We've never heard <laughs> any good All ribs. Right. I'll, I'll pile that on. It feels like Regal almost has like an O and heart sense of humor. Would there have been any sort of fun Regal ribs you can share with us? Not, you know, I can never think of ribs off the top of my head when I'm just put on the spot like that, but oh, I, you, I you didn't know we were doing a show on Regal. Cause I announced no, it about two months no, ago. no. Not about ribs, but I, I remember just spending a lot of, a lot of time with, with Regal out in California. And, um, it was during a time that he was straight and I used to terrify him with my driving because I would go from the right lane all the way over to the high occupancy vehicle lane. And he didn't know what the hell that was. And he would just white knuckle himself all the way home. I like to kind of scare him like that, but no, Regal Regal's a pretty straight shooter, man. He's, he, he really does abide by the, you know, I don't rib and I don't want to be ribbed. Cool. Uh, is Daniel wants to know, is Regal one of the top five most underappreciated WWE talents in history? I believe he's, he's up there. Yeah. Because he's, he had so many setbacks that you can only imagine if he didn't have those setbacks, how far he would have gone. How would uh, Jim Cornette describe the man's man gimmick? This is the stupidest fucking song I've ever heard in my goddamn life, motherfucker. All righty. Fuck you. Thank you. Motherfucker. Mark wants to know, not looking like the prototype for a WWE champion, did Vince ever express frustrations with Regal's physique? He expressed frustrations in the beginning when he was, when he was out of shape and he was flabby and he was loose. That was the only time that Vince really had a frustration with him. The fact that he wasn't muscular, that didn't bother him at all. But when his, his body and his, his shape affected his work, that's when Vince got pissed off. Keith wants to know what was the long-term plan for the real man gimmick? Had it actually worked out? God, I don't think there was one. I don't think that they saw a whole lot in him. Hence, hence that gimmick. What the hell really do you do with it? Because it was presented in a comedic way from day one. So I don't know. It just, I don't think they had any plans. Craig writes Regal is known or well-known rather for doing anything, no matter how embarrassing. Do you remember any ideas he ever said no to? No, absolutely not. He was. He was willing to do what he was asked. And if he felt that there was something better, he would suggest a better idea, but no, that's the beautiful thing about Regal is he was willing to do whatever it took to get over. Well, and we're willing to do the same. We hope that you'll get over to the Regent theater and come see us, where we're going to be doing our thing, man, right before the survivor series, the day before the survivor series, just before NXT kicks off, you'll be able to see us and then cruise over and make it in plenty of time to see the NXT show. Tickets are on sale now at brucepritchard.com. And the rumor and innuendo is that we might have a special guest. 
just a week later on the 24th, we're making our North Carolina debut and we are going to have a ton of fun there. It's WrestleCade. Tickets are on sale now at brucepritchard.com. You don't want to miss that. We've got tons more dates that are available all at brucepritchard.com. Lots of extra bonus footage, uh, lots of behind the scenes of Bruce when he's on the road. And we let a couple of bonus shows slip out there that you, the patrons get to pick out over at Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. Had you been on the Patreon bandwagon, you would have gotten this and every show early and commercial free. Uh, so give it a whirl. It's patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. We don't talk about it very often, but it's still happening. Bruce has all the t-shirts you can possibly stand. And eventually Bruce is going to call and thank you for making your pick. We've got new shirts coming your way right now at brucepritchard.com. And, uh, don't forget to support our sponsors, man. If you need a hashtag super hard dick, you need some blue chew and you can use our promo code, which is in the show notes right here on the podcast. You can try it for free. Just pay $5 shipping and handling. And, uh, until next week, Bruce, goodbye. Or wait, I forgot you're doing a thing now, right? We're not saying just bye. We're doing a thing. Shaka. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.